higher than the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong company that can haul ass. Travel with portable speakers like Oz Gas. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million problems. That way I could have pinpoint all one million outlets. I wish I found a gene in that. I wish the girls gave me them sugar like doing that. I wish I was a comedian. Like nice sitcoms syndicated on TV. I wish this spell had water in it. These kids are still in all my pants. Focus on my wealth. You can have me rich, but I would rather wish the hell was like all this life. I wish, I wish. But every time we stop it, it feels just like it. I wish, I wish. Every time we do it, it feels just like it. I wish, I wish. Hey cats and kittens, and welcome to another lo-fi episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and once again, just like last week, I am away from home. I am in New York for New Year's, so I don't have my equipment, my soundboard. There will be no trauma savant sound cues or anything of the sort, but I should be back home for the next episode, so I apologies for apologies for inconvenience. Uh, we were talking about yesterday's episode, and of course, anything else that is on your mind, I spoke to Stephen Simler, who has been tracking military spending like few others actually have, and not just tracking it, but honestly doing such a good job of communicating the information in an easy-to-consume format. So if you don't already follow him on a Substack and on Twitter and everywhere else on social media, I strongly recommend it. Um, and of course, we can talk about what a day it has been <laughs> on Twitter. I feel like this story with Andrew Tate and Greta Greta Thunberg, I never say her name, I apologize, is the exact perfect sort of story for this time of year when everyone's just in this lull and not really paying attention to anything substantive. I know there's a little bit of like misinformation about the actual connection between the actual pizza in the video as the evidence that ignited the arrest and all of that, but just... From a pure narrative standpoint, it was it was quite a day. I'm eager to know what you guys think right here on Peter Thiel's own app. So let's get right to it. We had a short a short call last time, so I want to make sure I have time for you guys today. So uh, Carolina, Carolina boy, what's on your mind? Hey Bree, how's it going? Can you hear me? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, you know, kind of like you mentioned, it's been a pretty interesting. Uh, time on the internet uh with all this stuff that's uh, going on and uh you know th- this uh uh Andrew Tate story was kind of where I wanted to um start things off and, and get your thoughts on um you know I I wasn't too surprised like when I heard about the arrest to see like the the army of you know these uh, far right wingers that are immediately like claiming victimhood for him and you know that this is like a, a you know a a personal conspiracy and and uh, he's being persecuted for and being essentially like some sort of high scale cancellation of like a misunderstood profit essentially is the way that they're trying to frame this. Yeah. And, um, I'm just wondering, I, I guess that I think that they're going to try to ride that to the end. And, um, and I was just kind of curious your thoughts on this. So I have been mostly blissfully unaware of who this uh, human being is. I, I remember covering it only briefly on Rising um, in the context of some of the Twitter cancellations uh, and who Elon Musk was going to bring back and all of that kind of stuff. And Robbie had to kind of hit me to what claims had been made about him and 
why certain people thought that he had been unjustly censored and all those kinds of things. But I just generally understood him to be a kind of openly misogynist, men's rights kind of a guy who had been taken off of, I think, TikTok for um, comments that encouraged physical abuse against women, and that violated their terms of service. It seemed like not particularly ambiguous about his kind of like merit or value in society, unlike some of these other people who are more able to couch themselves in kind of free speech absolutist terms or truth tellers or stuff like that. So like this, this has been, I think an educational journey for me in the same way it has been for other people. I mean, what, what was your understanding of him before this? Had you followed him closely? You know, I, so I'd actually um, heard about him over uh, a year ago. He's um, he, he, I think he's got a lot of prominence on, uh, I don't know if you heard about the fresh and fit podcast no what's that okay oh my god so it's it's this podcast like based out of miami where basically there are these two two guys that that are um it's kind of like the center of the of what i'd call like the red the red pill manosphere space um they 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 they, you know they used to host like uh kevin samuels and and they um they had Andrew on their podcast like a few times a while ago and and that's definitely like where he got like a lot of attention. The podcast had like exploded like in 2021 and um you know they they just say like you know all this basic a lot of the same stuff Andrew Tate says, you know, um you know uh, being alpha male uh you know women uh, are supposed to be submissive and um you know uh, all that like usual like you know really toxic uh, stuff that um, that is, I think it's getting a lot of, um, a lot of like viral attention these days, but, mm. um, but Tate himself, like I looked into his history. So, you know, he was originally like this, uh, this guy in like this, uh, kickbox- kickboxing league that, that no one watched. And then he like made it on some British TV reality show that he got kicked off of for like mm. whipping somebody with a belt. Um, he's been trying to make himself go viral for a while is what it seems like just to like get famous and get clout and get rich and all that. Um, and so, and he has this, uh, he has this, uh, he has this like scam course called Hustlers University or whatever, where, um, you know, he's basically been targeting like young men to, uh, try to show them like, look, you know, I got, I got these cars, I got these mansions, I got these models. I used to be broken, uh, more of a loser than you and whatever. And now I'm like, uh, and you know, I'm now I'm the top G and stuff, sign up for my course and uh, I'll teach you how to get all this too and stuff. And, um, and it's, it's just a bunch of snake oil. It's like, uh, it's a load of bull and, and shit. And, um, basically one of the things with his course was like, he was trying to teach people how to like create content to make it go viral. And so he was having like a lot of people repost videos and clips of him like on different uh, youtube channels and um tiktok and so he was just trying to force himself to go viral that's why he like just exploded out of nowhere um this year he, like he, he his uh his stuff really snowballed and that's how he got a lot of attention wait so, and, so does that work if i if i force i don't know how i would do that but if i force you guys to post videos of my clips all over the internet that i can also be trending on on twitter <laughs> well i mean when you also say like outrageous stuff like he does like in order to get attention like yeah that's, oh i see i have to be a terrible human being as well <laughs> exactly exactly and so um you know i mean he's just a total charlatan i, I i've never cared about or like took anything that he said seriously i mean i guess the best thing you say is like maybe like it, it, it seems to me like he's a troll he's, he's a character i don't think anything he says seriously but because you can maybe say that like his character like some things i could kind of laugh at but 
the, I guess the thing that worries me the most is that it seems like a lot of young men like are taking this to heart and think that he is like this profound truth teller. And um, I feel like that speaks to like a symptom of like a bigger problem. And, and like my bigger worry is um, I think that the, I think that the left in general seems to be like too dismissive of like addressing these issues um, and I saw, didn't you have like a, a, you did like an episode, like talking, discussing this with a FD signifier, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is like, I'm weirdly fascinated and can't look away from some of this men's rights stuff. Like I would find myself watching Kevin Samuels videos and like trying to understand the appeal, not just for men, but for the women who would call in regularly and kind of sign up for what felt like a kind of ritualized abuse. And it, and it feels to me sometimes like, the the appeal is that there's this grain of truth in a lot of the advice. Like there's this aspect of it that it's like, it's like a, it's a hard, it's hard truths that are good for you. You know, the reality of society and the judgments that people make about, you know, super, you know, superficial as they may be about looks and whether or not you should work out and whether or not you should dress differently and whether or not you're looking for people who are, had more opportunities. And so they aren't going to come looking for you unless you improve yourself in X, Y, and Z way. Like there, there is like this, I understand the appeal of the, and the satisfaction of hearing someone who kind of is a little delusional about kind of where they are in their life and maybe has mm-hmm. too high standards and things like that being like corrected, but the appeal of it happening in such a mean spirited way. And for Kevin Samuels in particular, the biases that he had against darker skinned women and heavier women and things like that, that he didn't also mm-hmm. apply equally to men. Like it's, mm-hmm. I just, I didn't understand. Like I would just keep, I would just like watch kind of unbelievable. Like it, it was unbelievable that people would sign up for a very predictable dressing down from people like him. But if I'm engaged by it, if I can't look away from it, then obviously there's some kind of appeal, right? Like knowing how it is some mm-hmm. kind of appeal. And obviously there's a or whatever Jordan Peterson is are selling. I don't think. Have you watched the content? Have I watched what? I can. Have you watched this kind of content? I mean, it sounds like you listen. You've listened at least to this um fresh and fit podcast before. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've 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 like tuned into to some of it before like i have uh mainly because i have like some some younger cousins that uh they've tried to like show me this and i felt like they were starting to get kind of sucked in with it and i'm trying to like uh and you know i i didn't realize like how popular this stuff is because um like a a lot of this there's actually a really big space like on the internet of of a lot of this content and I think um, I, I think it speaks in general to like a bigger problem of like internet culture and this like extremist content and uh, and a lot of like lonely young men that get uh, sucked down like a rabbit hole of this type of contents and getting um, and I think there's some correlation that we could say with like some of the popular like some. Uh, some like the mass shootings that we see going on, like with the, mm-hmm. the, the terrorist in Buffalo that did that lynching, he was like sucked in on online content there. And there mm-hmm. have been like other of these like incels that have done like these sort of attacks and things in the problem. So I just think that it does speak to 
the idea that there is like a bigger problem with like young men these days. And also, I think there was also research and studies that shows like a lot of men like feel more depressed than usual and more lonely. Uh, I think it's like they said recently that like a third of um, men these days are uh, like have never uh, been with a woman in their life, like are essentially are virgins, which, uh, you know, is like an all time high or something like that recently, despite like, you know, more social media, which people thought was like bringing people closer together and stuff. So, mm. like, I think I think there is like an issue there to be addressed, and I think that for a long time, like, um, you know, especially the left has like focused a lot on, um, you know, focusing on helping with uh, equality for for women's rights, and you know, these feminist movements, which, um, you know, generally a lot of things I support, but I feel like um, a lot of it is a lot of men feel like unheard it feel unheard and like invisible and like with their issues these days and and i think yeah. it's something to to you know to look at yeah i was actually i i was talking to um my lyft driver on the way to the airport in cleveland when i was coming home from christmas and we were talking about blah 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 and politics and he was saying how this is a black guy saying how he you know was irritated with the democratic party and the republican party he understood why people found Trump appealing because at least it seemed like he was an outsider and could shake things up. Of course, it didn't happen. We all agree that Trump is terrible, but like he, you know, we were having this conversation about generalized political disaffectation. And then in particular, he started talking about how he felt like Black Lives Matter and he said some problematic things in here. I just want to be clear. I'm not co-signing all of this. But mm -hmm. um, he went on to say that he thought that Black Lives Matter in particular had been co-opted by women he specifically seemed to take some issue with it being lesbian women and that they had no real interest in focusing on the lives of men in particular and that he felt excluded from that movement. Now, again, not co-signing that aspect of it, but that does echo um, this like narrative that I've heard a lot from folks that say that they feel particularly that men are excluded from some of these groups. Now, women, women or movements rather, women on the other hand say, you know, historically, Women have been pushed out of the civil rights movements and as leadership from leadership and all of these other similar kinds of movements. And even in Black Lives Matter, there was has to be this like kind of fight where DeRay McKesson was being kind of pushed to the front in a leadership role that wasn't really earned or accurate. And the women who started the hashtag had to like kind of reclaim public prominence. And, you know, it's not a clean line, but it whatever you feel about how accurate the narrative is that this, this Lyft driver was talking about it's out there and it needs to be addressed. Like for whatever reason, men feel like they're in a crisis and they are seeking out really destructive avenues to address it. And I guess my question is like, if it is true that men aren't finding satisfying relationships, romantic relationships in their life, and maybe we can attribute it to like app culture, or I guess, unless women are also not having sex, then I guess it means that a small group of men is having sex with all the women. I don't know. I'd have to see some numbers, but like, it's such a, like, why is no one able to give yeah. me advice? No, that, why is that, able to give men advice about no, how to exactly successfully that, partner. That's mm -hmm. not toxic. Yeah, no. And, and that's, um, that, I will say like that, that is like one of the common things that, uh, that I don't, I mean, I don't know if it's like hundred percent, true but that uh that a lot of the people in like this red pill red pill space i think are saying is that um women's standards are raised are uh, rising these days um 
and that uh and so like more and more men are being excluded and therefore like this is why like boys y'all gotta you know get your shit together get in the gym like you know get your money right and and these things and stuff but you know they kind of but you see they 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 always like try to push them towards um you know going for uh, you know, I, I would say like a, a lifestyle that is just not something to really be desired. Like a lot of them promote, uh, I don't know if you've heard of one way monogamy. <laughs> what? what? Yeah. So one way monogamy It's basically like what they're trying to say is if you can get, and this was something that Andrew Tate was promoting. And like, they say like on the fresh, even I think Kevin Samuels in, in, to a degree was saying like, if you can become a high value man. And if you meet like these standards, you like can make, uh, it, it, uh, uh, enough money and and uh, and uh, it, you know whatever the standards are for a high value man, then you can like have uh, uh, you know you can have a woman where she, she you know she is monogamous to you, but uh, that monogamy is only one way. You can still like have whatever you want because you're a high value man. You should you know you deserve to have more as uh, you know you deserve to be able to have more women or things like that. So. Um, I just think that, yeah, a, a lot of that is problematic. And I, I think that, I think this, I think that the left needs to try to find like some alternative to this that can like address these crises without like, yeah. you know, having them go down these kind of like ridiculous um, rabbit holes. So, yeah. Yeah, man, maybe that should be, maybe that should be my, my next move because I feel like I have things to say to these men. Not that anyone needs to be listening to me for a relationship advice, I guess. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> yeah. I, to one of my little cousins a couple years ago she was like in her early 20s and she was telling me about like men she liked and crushes she had and stuff and I noticed that she would say something about like I thought that maybe he would ask me out or I thought he liked me but then like correct quickly correct herself and like make it very clear that she thought it was like ridiculous well of course I don't have any expectation that he actually take me on a date and like oh I'm not so clingy that I thought that you know just because we slept together that he owes me anything at all mm-hmm. and I was like wait 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 that is not crazy for you to have an emotional attachment to this person like you're supposed like you're, you're supposed you're supposed to like people like the whole point the whole point is that you like people emotionally mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. you hope they like you back and like mm-hmm. I remember being in that phase of development when you're like in middle school, where it's like embarrassing to admit that you like somebody, and you, you're like, it's right. the world <laughs> is for your crush to know. But at a certain point, like we're like we are mutually understanding that the goal here is for us to be in some kind of relationship that's mutually right. beneficial, and it can be sexual only. Like I'm not trying to be a puritan about it, but like mm-hmm. if you want something that's not purely sexual, you're also fully allowed to articulate the desire. And set boundaries for yourself and move through the world mm-hmm. to get what you want. And like mm-hmm. that second part of it where it's like to the idea of setting boundaries for this younger generation where they set the expectation that like you can do what you want, but I want to be in a monogamous relationship or I want to be in a relation, you know, you know, relationship that's actually emotionally substantive. It was almost like she was embarrassed to, mm-hmm. to, to admit that that's what she wanted. And I was like, mm-hmm. holy smokes, I don't I don't even know what to do with that. Yeah, I don't know. Do you think, I don't know if that has anything to do with, like, any sort of recent trends in, like, the, I mean, I don't really like to use this phrase because I feel like this is more like a 
a right wing sort of, uh, you know, demonization of like a feminist movement, but of sort of like the, the sexual revolution where, you know, it's like where it's becoming sort of more um, accepted for uh, women to sort of objectify men the way that men like typically have objectified uh, women, like, you know, uh, it, it, for just purely physical uh, reasons um, without mm-hmm. any sort of emotional things like that. I mean, I, I don't know if it's related to things like that or, um, I, I mean, I feel like it could be. And then, all you know, the, the new social media age with, um, I, I'm curious to know if there's like research around this, if like things like, um, you know, the, the new rise in dating apps and things like that, that make, you know, uh, looks m- much more significant in like choosing like people that you got on a date with or that you talk to and, and, and things like that. I, I, I don't know if it's, it, I, th- I feel like it could be related to those things. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that it is, it is true that in a world where women are allowed to make their own income <laughs> right, and, and like own credit cards and have basic rights in society that yeah, men do have to bring more to the table than they have had to do historically. Historically, you know, every woman needed a man, right? Every single one had to, to survive. So mm-hmm. like there's a, there's a lid for every pot as it were. Yeah. And now, especially, I think, I think that with like also the rise of like the influence of gay culture and higher expectations for men's grooming and fitness, and mm-hmm. kind of the influence of like, you know, you know, some gay culture in the advertising world and the depiction of men that you get that are like geared toward the male gaze as well. The male gaze is no joke, <laughs> and now straight mm-hmm. men are realizing that too. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's rough out here, and so I yeah. do think that there's been a kind of equalization that feels bad for men. And I get it. I'm not like, mm-hmm. I'm not like chortling and relishing it. It sucks. But mm-hmm. like what has happened is a kind of equality where men are having to play by some of the same rules that women have always had to, to yes. get a partner. Now, mm-hmm. I think that some stuff like is like, ev- I don't want to sound like a men's right activist, but there's a certain like evolutionary, like <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's, some, there's some component of attraction right. that we're all just going to have to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, like, I don't think there's anything, like, necessarily super toxic and wrong to saying, like, here's how you can present yourself better on a dating app. Don't take mm-hmm. a bathroom selfie. Try to get a nice picture smiling with friends. Here's how mm-hmm. you can maybe improve your skin regime or, you know, get a haircut that's more flattering or, you know, put some clothes on that look appropriate. You know, like, and then it's all bound up with class and a bunch of other stuff, of course, too. And it's it's hard to extricate. But mm-hmm. the part of it yeah. what that becomes, like, you have this value as a man. And if you have any positive qualities, if you earn a certain amount of money, if you're a certain height, then it is stupid for you to want to give up your ability to have multiple partners mm-hmm. multiple non-consensually exactly. and treat mm-hmm. them poorly is yeah. the bonkers part. Yeah. And, and, and I, I so, bet a lot of men, yeah. frankly, want to have more meaningful relationships, but in these spaces, that's not even like allowed. Well, I don't. I don't even know if they really want. If they really want to have any more like relationships, I feel like they. A lot of men these days, um, they grow up and you know they see like uh, Dan Bilzerian, or essentially, it's like so many guys want to be like a modern day Hugh Hefner essentially is, is mm-hmm. what it seems like. 
And so um, I feel like, you know, there needs to, <laughs> I, I feel like there needs to be something done to try to help a lot of men, like, one, understand that it's pretty unattainable for, like, the vast, vast majority of men to have that kind of lifestyle, but also that, mm. you know, there's something that, you know, it, it is generally much healthier to have, like, a relationship with someone that, you know, you care about and where you guys are, you know, each committed to each other and, um, and it, like, th- there's, uh, you know, there, there's, there's more than just like, you know, than just the sex uh, part of it. And then, um, but I guess the, the only thing that I kind of could give some credit to like some of the people in this red pill space and like the Kevin Samuels and above is, um, and, and I don't know if it's just like the people that they put on their show that um, they, they use to, to point this out or just sort of like a self-selecting group, but it does seem like, a lot of the women that they uh, show do kind of seem to have standards that are that of like a very small percentage of men. Like I'm sure you've heard mm-hmm. of the six, six, six thing or whatever. Like he's got to be six feet tall, have a six figure income and, and a six pack or, you know, or a six inch, <laughs> whatever. And, and like those kind of things. And like, that's, that's like a very small, like percentage of men. It's like less than 10% of men are like, uh, you know, over six feet to begin with. And then on top of that, you know, making that kind of money and, uh, being in shape like that's like a small percent of men so yeah that's hilarious yeah. i've never met him yeah so anyways but no this uh this is good i think uh i, I just think this is something that we're gonna need to like address because I, I i see that you know especially like young high school college age kids that like grew up in the social media age this seems to boys especially seems to be like a problem for them and, and i feel like the left is doing like a disservice to like um, not address it and then leave them like prey to like these, you know, charlatan, like far right, you know, um, ridiculous misogynist dudes. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. This is, this has been a good chat. Look, I'm completely open to making this whole thing about <laughs> this whole episode today about what's going on, what's going on with men and women and dating. Um, <laughs> but it's been good talking to you, Carolina boy. Okay. Thanks for you. Happy new year. Happy new year. All right. All right. Neutrino, what's on your mind tonight? Hey, Brianna, can you hear me? Loud and clear. All right. Hey, I'm a big fan uh, of your work. Really, really appreciate uh, what what you've been doing. So, wanted to echo what um, what Stephen said on the show today or yesterday, I guess it was. Um, so, I I wanted to mention he he brought up a really good point about. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the military's sort of carbon, you know, impacts just really mm-hmm. dwarfing, you know, what is supposedly the, you know, greatest, um, you know, climate bill in, you know, U.S. history, the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm-hmm. And um, there, there's a really good, uh, there, there's a point that uh, I think a lot of the media has missed on, on this one. Um, and a lot of the sort of Biden stands, you know, love pointing out that, the Inflation Reduction Act is responsible for a 40% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's actually not, it's highly misleading um, at best. And, and it'd be interesting to look at, you know, compare these numbers with, um, with what Stephen was talking about, but basically, you know, emissions by 2030, we're going to drop depending on the model you look at between you know 20 and 30 percent anyway and Mm -hmm. so like if you like you know so 
what Biden gets credit for is maybe, you know, a lot smaller. It's not the full 40%. Like it's just really, you know, 10, 12, 15%, something like that is maybe a little more uh, appropriate. And mm-hmm. so um, I just, I wanted to point that out because there's, uh, I started keeping track of all of the, you know, laudatory New York Times op-eds and all this other stuff that kept just repeating without scrutiny, this 40% reduction and it, it sounds really great you know I'd, I'd love mm-hmm. to see a 40 percent reduction uh but that's you know that's just not that's just not reality that inflation reduction act is not doing that it's probably doing you know 10 or 12 percent um and then when you put in the yeah. backsliding of of the you know defense stuff which is obviously you know severe um it sort of you know it puts it all in all in perspective Ooh, neutrino, oh. neutrino, cut it out a little bit. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Did, I don't did know you if miss you that, that last part. Different spot or I, I ah, yeah. I'm sorry. I just, I just blame Verizon for where I'm at. <laughs> Yeah, no worries. I got I got your gist though, and I think that it's just such an important point. And I remember some folks, you know, in the environmental journalism community and stuff when the inflation act was passed. And I'm, you know, it's a credit to them for doing so. It is frustrating to see all of the propaganda that has happened since. Like I mentioned on I think on one of these recent episodes that I was streaming some TV show, and I kept getting hit with this commercial. That was an advertisement for how amazing Biden's climate bill was. And I ignored it the first time, but it was one of those things where, you know, you get the same commercial four times in the commercial break. (laughs) And I was like, what the hell is this? And I wish I had recorded it because now I can't find it anywhere on the internet. But like, that's the propaganda that people are getting hit with. And without like a really robust environmental movement, without there being some like, you know, really active, um, militant movement that is calling out the Democrats in this instance, like everyone is so complacent. And then you look like the enemy. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's this exhausting cycle of it being made to look like you're being so unfair to everybody because if, if one person like me stands up and says, or, you know, these environmental groups or whatever, stand up and say, you know, Biden's Biden's policy didn't actually do that much. or wasn't that great in the overwhelming flush of, positive media you just look like a hater yeah you know and it, right. it, it, it's, it's overwhelming especially because me who am i but and, if it you know at least if it's the sunrise movement and sierra club and all of them together making these kind of statements that can maybe make a dent but i i'm just not seeing the kind of pushback that i would have liked to have seen in response to the propaganda around uh build back better that i totally agree and but i i think there's a sort of another angle of it um which is like people's inability to process quantitative information about emissions. Mm -hmm. So like we keep talking Mm -hmm. about percentage reductions, like, oh, it should be this percent or this percent. And um, it's super confusing because like the European Union has these targets based on a 1990 uh, baseline. And so a percentage reduction from that is actually much, much greater than the U.S.'s baseline, which is often 2005 which was sort of like one of the high water marks of, of our greenhouse gas emissions. And so like we need to, like one of the things I liked about what Stephen uh, was pointing out is like, you gotta 
you got to start talking in megatons, you know, mm. like it, it can't just be the rhetoric and the, the Sierra club and other people just want to, you know, we're finally getting like some tiny, tiny measure of action on this critical issue. And so we just, you know, we're over the moon, you know, and people are like being obsequious with <laughs> members of the administration mm-hmm. uh, and just giving them this praise that, you know, is somewhat deserved. But, you know, as as uh, David Sirota said in your show, you know, it's like a modest, maybe kind of good fit. Like, hopefully it's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. but, but we need to start talking when people need to understand like megatons and, you know, just because there's like a military exemption you know, under uh, emission standards like that, that doesn't mean those don't count, you know, those those are just as serious as, you know, as anybody else uh, emitting stuff anywhere, like it's all the same. Um, It leads to the same problem. And so, um, you know, when this is one of my frustrations is that the Inflation Protection Act um, has, you know, so much of the the programs there, putting aside that some of the tax credits for solar and wind, which are a good idea, um, a lot of the stuff for energy efficiency in homes is is actually run through the states and so like people are already claiming this early victory uh for you know all this the great stuff that's going to happen and and taking you know natural gas out of homes and it's like like guys like (laughs) that's all dependent on state action that maybe will happen in 2023 and it's going to be a real, you know, checked uh, uh, record, right? Like, you know, Arkansas and Florida and Ohio are probably not going to do very well uh, with mm. distributing those funds and, and making okay. good use of it. Um, you know, California, New York, like, yeah, they'll probably do a decent job. Um, but like, it just, it's what's maddening to me is that, you know, you have folks like the Heritage Foundation and whatever that write these incredibly detailed uh, you know, pieces of legislation that get adopted federally. Um, and then in, you know, on the left or, you know, climate world, it's like, we have these super complicated, like, oh, well, we give it to the states and then we let them do it. And, you know, we respect federalism and all this stuff. And it's all very like hands off and you set your own rules. And like, we're just happy that you showed up and decided to make a little bit of effort, you know, thank you, Arkansas. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. I don't know, it's just, we're just so outgunned. It's like, you know, you know, knives to, to a gunfight kind of a situation. Yeah. I mean, there's so much dumb quipping about trust the science that's happening right now. Like people who are using it in bad faith context, but of course it is true that like, there is a really irritating hypocrisy about folks who, like say we're liberals and we love science and then turn around in an environmental context, pursue policies that are completely out of touch with what the science demands in terms of our interventions right now. So like, I want to be like, Oh, you don't guys, you actually don't really care about science, but I don't want to be collapsed with certain other folks who are also saying that (laughs) for reasons that I don't love. Um, But you know, there is, there is hypocrisy there and you know, it's, I don't know. Like it just, I, I am like, I really was feeling that Davis Arota episode because the, 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 gap between the rhetoric and the action makes me want to tear my hair out and makes me want to go Andre's right. mom and <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say without getting myself arrested so right well and, and keep in mind you know AOC and and Senator Markey announced you know the Green New Deal sort of uh, I don't know what you call it a messaging bill or you know whatever the, the initial like framework was and you know they were talking 15 trillion and we ended up getting what 370 billion so you know uh 
what is that? 2% uh, of that number. And it's like, it's, you know, like I said, aside from the solar and wind uh, tax credits, like it's kind of a convoluted mess of, uh, you know, administering it is dependent on all these other, uh, you know, agencies and like, it's, it's going to be super complicated. So, um, you know, I, anyway, what bugs me is obviously that, you know, if you're a liberal, like you can't, anyway, you're not allowed to criticize Biden, but, um, but if I may, I just had one other, one other thing that I wanted to, to bring your attention to that that's pretty interesting. Um, so, uh, you may not have followed this, but the, there's been some, um, attacks, some have, have said terrorist attacks domestically on substations, which are part of the, the power grid. Um, and uh, they're starting to happen more and more. And this is related, you know, when we talk about national security uh, stuff and sort of endless spending, you know, on, on wars and defense contractors, et cetera. Um, there is a pretty serious, you know, domestic uh, threat. So one of the uh, former chairs of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and said, I think in 2009, that, um, you know, if you and six of your best friends were to go to Walmart and buy some rifles and at the right time, at the right place, you were to just shoot up uh, some of these substations around the country, you could basically mm-hmm. cause a nationwide blackout that could last, you know, six or 12 months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so I, I was actually giving a presentation about this to, to some people recently and then it turns out um, a week after that, um, there was an attack in North Carolina affecting Duke Energy. Um, a week after that, there was one in Oregon. And then uh, Olympia and Tacoma, Washington just had another one. With So it's like this very like right wing kind of accelerationist like race war kind of people are mm-hmm. getting their guns and potentially shooting up these substations. And so anyway, when we talk about like, what is, you know, what does security actually mean? Uh, you know, I, you know, obviously I don't think it's, you know, all this crazy, um, you know, crazy spending and stuff that, that just went through the bond of this bill. Um, but like, you know, you can drive to, there's like no physical security at any of these substations. Like there's one by my house. There's probably one by your house. Like you can just drive up and do whatever you want. And mm-hmm. nobody seems concerned about this whatsoever. So, um, you know, like I said, if you, you know, you could take these things out. I'm not, obviously not recommending that uh, in any way or condoning it, but um, it's a major, major risk here. And um, if you wanted to just cause, you know, mass mayhem and chaos, that's what you do. It would do. And, and the Department of Justice just um, uh, they convicted four people on plotting, you know, exactly this this sort of thing around there. So. Anyway, it touches on the national security issue and also, like, if we want to have clean electricity and get carbon out of homes, which is supposedly, you know, what, what we're trying to work towards, um, it's not going to work when the power's out for three to six months, you know, because of, you know, we just, you know, didn't feel like tending to basic physical security at some of these locations. Yeah, I mean, I, I did see a little bit of that. I also saw a story about how many dams are old. And how many, yeah. you know, cities would be, you know, underwater if X number of dams collapsed and like just crazy. I was packing to come to New York and I took the train and I was thinking about, oh, how wonderful it is that I can pack this huge jug of hair conditioner and don't have to worry about it the way I would if I were getting on a plane. And then I thought to myself, well, if there is actually any security risk <laughs> involved in any of this stuff, 
trains are just open season because nobody's looking at anything. And I don't know. I think that's a, a perfectly good point to raise. But again, per the Stephen Donziger episode, I think one of the ways they're going about discouraging anybody from civil disobedience is just having huge penalties for things that are not anywhere close to obviously causing any injury to people's lives or shutting down an entire power grid. But, you know, chaining yourself to pipes and unscrewing, you know, bolts on pipes and things like that is getting folks nine years in prison. And they're hoping that being overly punitive will keep keep folks in line. And I think that will work as long as things don't get worse. And that's that's the yeah. game of chicken that folks are playing. Like how how much can they just give us a little bit of a stimulus bill here and there and, and sell little wins here and there, you know, to make people feel like they don't want to risk going to jail for nine years while the rest of the world just moves on. Right. Kind of okay. well, and, yeah, exactly. And that and it, the, they call it like critical energy infrastructure. And, and there's obviously, you know, the, the laws, um, you know, on the criminal, what do you call it? Criminal, like, or sentencing enhancements or something mm-hmm. that for oil and gas protests. That's obviously a big deal. Um, but there's actually a, a an interesting parallel sort of move that's happening. Um, New York's governor just signed a law, um, uh, just signed a bill into law that would um, uh, define uh, certain energy usage in your own home to be critical energy infrastructure. And so, like, it could potentially erect this weird security wall around attempts to, uh, you know, get gas out of your house and invest in energy efficiency and stuff like that. Like the, the electric utilities in the world use a lot of the, uh, like they try to hide but behind this national security defense all the time so that no one, you know, there's no, so that they can limit competition in their area. Um, and mm. so anyway, so I've, I've come across a lot of uh, really you know, just baseless claims. Oh, you know, we can't give a solar developer access to this information about the power grid because that implicates national security. You know, mm. like, no, no, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, well, you know, sorry, like we're the only one that has the security clearance and you don't. And so the solar developer can just go pound sand. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, that, that same thing gets weaponized even, uh, you know, not just with criminal sentencing, but with like, just like basic stuff, like getting low cost renewables onto the power grid. So anyway, yeah. just wanted to point that out. Yeah, look, I appreciate that, Neutrino. Thanks for calling in. Is this a is your is this your first time? Yeah, it is. I've been I've been in the queue in the queue before. Yeah, and I tried to uh, tried to get in, but um, yeah, no, I thank you so much. Um, it's it's really a pleasure, and and like I said, I, I really have uh, been a fan of of your work, and just yeah, hope you keep keep on keeping on. Well, I appreciate that. Keep the faith, Neutrino. It's All happy right. to hear. Take care. You too. All right, Amanda. What is all- Hello, Brianna. Hello, Amanda. Que pasa? It's, oh, que pasa? Uh, way too much for me to say in Spanish because <laughs> I speak a total of one language because I'm American. Um, I, I'm also, I, I also have that terrible American affliction, so <laughs> I'm glad. What's on your mind tonight? And you've, le- and you've lived abroad, too, so. I have um, no excuse. I have none. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. I sorry. I should have kept my mouth shut. Um, the, the, I just two things. Um, one is just the glimmer of an idea because I don't know anything about law schools or the Federal Society or the Heritage Foundation or any of these things. But it seems to mm-hmm. me 
that if we had, you know, you said you had one Marxist teacher when you were in law school. What if we had something that was a pathway for people who wanted to represent people against corporations or against the government? I mean, we're going to need lawyers during the revolution because it's not going to all fall at once. And if we can get some kind of society going like that. Yeah, look, I think it's that's I think it's very difficult. A hundred percent. I'm not going to disagree. Uh, so, very hard. So part of part of the issue and this is a, an issue across the left, right, where we say, well, the right has these institutions. Why doesn't the left have these institutions to follow people through? And the recurring theme is that the right has the money and the left does not because the Koch brothers, et cetera, have plenty of incentive in funding, you know, a, a, a pathway to the Supreme Court and to these legal institutions where folks are going to make decisions that are advantageous for them. It's a good spin for their money. It's a good value for their money. The left doesn't have money in the first place and rich people who do have money have the same aligned interests with the Koch brothers, even if they're like good people on paper or, or culturally liberal or whatever it is. So this is a fundamental issue. It has come up in a lot of instances. Like Ryan Grimm used to talk about how frustrating it was. We'd be covering these progressive candidates like, um, gosh, what was the name? There was this great, like, young working class mother, uh, black, half black, half white, who was running against, um, who was running for Senate in Delaware. And when she lost, she went back to barely being able to afford Pampers. Now, when right-wingers lose, they go into some, you know, they get book deals, they get a Fox News correspondence deal. When neoliberals lose, they get a, you know, they get a show on MSNBC or they get to work at CAP or something like that to hold them out. What happens to a leftist? Nothing. Like, you hope that Verso publishes your book, right? So, like, part of the issue is that, moreover, as much as people love to say that these institutions are left-leaning and liberal and all this stuff, the reality is it is very difficult for people with untraditional politics who are openly Marxist, et cetera, to move through academia. Look at how tough it's been for Cornell West. And look at the fact that after all of these years, we still point to people like Cornell West as the unicorns who have been able to make it through these institutions at all. I think my professor in part was able to go under the radar because he's a law and economics professor, which is like a traditionally conservative field. And if you weren't listening that closely, you might not even notice that he has these kind of more radical left politics. He's like a very like sweet, unassuming kind of a guy. He's not wearing you know, Che t-shirts to class or whatever, you know? So I think that you are correct. Um, but I was talking to a friend today, in fact, and we were talking about, I don't know if you've been following this Pete Buttigieg stuff, where obviously everyone's mad about him as Secret Secretary of Transportation and all the stuff that's been happening with Southwest and, you know, and people were resurfacing um, some of his greatest moments, including that New York Times interview where they accused him of um, working on price fix, a, price, a bread price fixing scheme in Canada. And he's like, no, I didn't do that. McKinsey did it. I was at McKinsey, but I didn't know, blah, 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 blah. I was talking to my friend about how when I was in school, we were all just pushed to work at McKinsey. And the ethics of it was like never a conversation. It was just the thing you did that was the most prestigious job you could get. Everyone should apply. You know, that was the ring you were supposed to grasp for. And there was this this almost effective altruism type understanding that to do good in the world, you just have to do well and earn money and you can give back later. And like nobody thought about what the implications of their 
career choices were going to be with the degrees that we got at these institutions and how much that does have to change. Because all my friends, we all lined up and went to law firms and did all this stuff. And at no point was there any real conversation about the ethical implications of it. Like, no, nowhere in the context of your educational environment. So I think you're right. I'm struggling with how to have that kind of transformational cultural change at these places because it's, it's very much needed. And I, I frankly wish there had been more social pressure against making some of the choices that I made earlier in my career. And I also wish, by the way, that there were less finance, fewer financial incentives toward making those kind of decisions for people who have student loan debt and feel like, yeah, oh my God, I got to pay these bills. <laughs> you know, I would just push back on the money think- thing. Because sure, I ahead. just push back on the money thing because I don't think you need giant funders. Look at the Bernie campaigns. I mean, you can raise the money if you've got a good enough cause to do it with. So I don't want to preclude it, and I want to just plant a seed and see what happens. You yeah. know, you don't get a plant the next day, right? Sure. So that's and I, and I also so want that, to just, there's some good stuff that's happening. New York, for instance, has in the last few years made it um, the same way that you have a right to legal representation as a criminal defendant. You have the right to an attorney in a um, tenant dispute. Everyone gets a, an eviction lawyer now. Oh, thank goodness! New York. At least something um, on the civil side, finally. Right. And Biden, I'm sorry, not Biden, LOL, but Bernie had some policies that were about, that were geared toward um, bet, more funding for um, indigent defense across the board. Because so many of these battles are just lost because poor people never have access to, you know, civil lawyers, uh, lawyers in civil contexts. And so I, I agree that, you know, if, you, if those things are more funded, there's more jobs for people to try to pursue out of these institutions because they're also very, very competitive. These kind of jobs are relatively low paying, but mm-hmm. to be a housing attorney, to be a public they're coming out of these, they're, they're both competitive and low paying. So I think that there are, yeah, there are a lot of ways to create more incentives for people to do that kind of work. And you're right. It's important. I don't know what else to say. Thank you. I appreciate that that take on it as an attorney yourself, because that's kind of part of where I got the idea. The second quick thing is if people want to have their New Year's resolution be to participate more this coming year, the United Mm. National Anti-War Coalition is calling for rallies across the country, across the world, the week of Martin Luther King Day. And Mm. you can organize one yourself if there isn't already one organized. It, it, there's like 17 or 18 cities already. You can go to unac.net. United. Unac.no2war.net. Two, like the number? No, T-O. T-O, okay, sorry. Yeah. Okay, cool beans. So folks can go and okay, check January out that website. You can, yeah, you can re- you can register your event. It's not hard if you've got one or two friends, make some signs and go stand on Main Street. It's not you don't have to make it a big deal. Some of them are not, some of them are. But it's a good resolution. Oh, this looks great. There's a I'm I'm Mark, doing a show. Kimberly, Kim- mm-hmm. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Dick. I'm just seeing that Margaret, Margaret Kimberly, Ajama Baraka, 
DJ Prashad are all speaking. Oh, this looks like some event on July 25th. But there's a lot of great people involved, it looks like. Yeah, it, and um, so tomorrow, my show, Crowdsourcing Revolution, we're going to talk about what you need to do if you want to have one in your town and there isn't one yet. So people can check it out uh, noon Pacific time. So that's, I guess, 3 p.m. Eastern. But also, you don't have to come to my show. You can just go to that website and sign up, register an event, because we need to start showing up and showing out. You're right, Amanda. You're you're 100% right. Thank you for this. Let me put this in my Slack so I don't lose this page. Happy New Year. Uh, and for Bree. people who missed it, again, it's unac.notowar.net. All right. Thanks, Amanda. Keep the faith. Happy New Happy New Year. Jonathan, what's on your mind? How are you feeling? I, it was my first day back at work. Um, Like technically my symptoms are gone, but I probably could have used another day. Like I feel uh, like tired and easily winded and, Mm. you know, doing normal activity, that sort of thing. But hopefully a good night's sleep will take care of the last of it. But uh, there has been a lot going on, hasn't there? It feels like, like I linked. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I, I don't know who Andrew Tate is, and I don't care enough to find out. But <laughs> I took one look at the guy and what he was doing and saying. And the first thing that came to mind, even before I saw what Greta said, was small dick energy. And I'm like, oh, nailed it. <laughs> Absolutely nailed it. And everybody else thought so, too, it seemed like. And that was just a, like, that was a lovely, like, uplifting detour from whatever (laughs) else was going on. Um, I haven't paid too much attention to it since, except for, of course, the Wikipedia entry where somebody cleverly (laughs) edited his kickboxing record to to show that he was defeated by uh, Greta Thunberg on the Twitter streets. Yeah, I don't, like... There, there are there are manosphere types who present like they have their lives together, right? Like take Kevin Samuels, obviously just trash coming out of his mouth, but he's sitting there in a well well tailored suit. He is giving off the impression of being successful. He's you know an, an attractive older man. Like I can believe that he can move through the world and like convince younger impressionable people that he knows something about success. Andrew Tate, like. I, Everything about him is just small dick energy. I'm sorry? I have, I just, just scream small dick energy. I have many fancy cars and I walk around with my shirt open and I smoke cigars and I tell everybody how cool I am. And yeah, small dick energy. Very much like that. Just cope. It's like very, I mean, it's a part of my heart almost has compassion for it because it feels so much like, Someone who is so deeply insecure. His insecurities are so obvious and transparent that it almost feels mean to make fun of him. I, I don't know. Like I feel like I'm punching down, even though he yeah. is allegedly fully human trafficking and you know not at all down. But I don't know. Like I just, it's hard for me to understand. I, I completely understand the impulse for young men to be looking for someone to help them. I don't understand why folks like him 
are attracted. Like Joe Rogan, even I get that. Like he's rich, yeah. he's successful, he's a good MMA fighter. He was a comedian. Like there's a lot to like there. You know, there's a lot to look up to there. I don't get Andrew Tate, but that's neither here nor there. What, what's on? What's on your <laughs> mind? It was there was something else uh, I was going to say about Andrew Tate, but now I forgot it. Anyway, uh, like the. The I found your episode with Stephen Semler to be extremely helpful because I think a lot of people were extraordinarily surprised when that thing dropped. They're like, what, 1.7 trillion? Like, what's even in it? I, why am I just hearing about this? Mm-hmm. And so I've been sending that out to a lot of people, actually. I, I thought it was fabulous. Covered all the bases. You even dropped that, that uh, you know, which I, I enjoy basking in the glow of that um that Nancy Pelosi press conference where uh, she wants to pick a woman, any woman. What are the odds that the woman would be Abby Martin? Yeah. What are the odds? Shout out to my mom for always grabbing the best clips. I love that clip. Yeah, me too. But that like, uh, you know, also I, it didn't hurt that there was a, uh, a shout out to, to Foddle at the end. Um, Although I'm told I have not talked to him directly, but I am told that now that he took this uh, UN gig, he is not allowed to do media anymore except through the UN press office. Oh, no. Okay, well, I'll follow up and see if that's true, but it'll, it's a huge loss to the left podcast community if that's true. Although there are there there is an alternative that I wanted to suggest, and that is um, I mentioned Isabella Weber before in the context of when you were asking about price controls. But she actually came out with a, like, published a working paper at the beginning of the month, essentially bringing the receipts that all of the inflation was caused by, um, you know, basically uh, supply chain and price gouging. And that it was these systemically important commodities is what she calls them. I call them need-its rather than want-its. Uh, those kind of essential goods yeah. that were all driving all the inflation and that it had nothing to do with stimulus checks. And in fact, as you guys touched on in that episode, which I thought was a great point, uh, you know, they were given the military personnel and the military contractors raises to compensate for the inflationary pressures, which is right. really what they should have been doing to the regular people instead of raising interest rates and trying to drive down wages and drive up unemployment. Um, if that's really what they were trying to do, you know, help people cope with inflation and fight inflation. Uh, but that's not what they were trying to do. Of course, we learned that from Clara, but anyway, Isabella Weber, uh, would, uh, be an excellent person to talk to about inflation and about price controls. Can you say her, can you say her last name for me? Isabella Weber, you're saying? Yeah, it's, uh, she's German. So it's spelled W E B E R, but, uh, she's very responsive on Twitter. Uh, we follow each other, but, uh, she like if you talk to her about especially anything related to her work, she always replies. Perfect. Okay, this is great. I am putting her in the chat, and I'm going to follow up on that for sure. You give such good uh, suggestions for guests. I always appreciate it, Jonathan. And that's that's pretty much. Uh, I mean, like, of course, I can I could spend hours uh, dunking on Pete Buttigieg, but. Uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty much been canvassed on Twitter, so I'll uh, make way for uh, whoever's up next. All right. I appreciate you, John. Is that Eric? Uh, uh, it is. It is not my cousin, Eric. Well, <laughs> well hello, Eric. And right, have a good rest of the 
rest of yeah. the call in. I hope Keep you the get faith. the best tonight. Keep the faith. All right, Eric Smith. Hey, Jonathan. I always love listening to Jonathan. He's a great guy. He's the best. <laughs> what well, is on your mind tonight, Eric? I, I'm sorry. I, I, I need to not keep calling you not cousin Eric. You, you are your I own I like Eric. it. I enjoy it. <laughs> Listen, I grew up with like three older brothers and the older sisters. So you, I'm youngest of four people. I'm used to being teased. This does not bother me at all. <laughs> all I enjoy right. it. <laughs> You're a good sport. What's on your mind tonight? So a couple of things on my mind. So one reason what I was going to speak about is because I watched your episode with you guys on The Rising recently when you had Marianne Wilson on. Marianne mm-hmm. Wilson on. And I wanted to get your, pick your brain about, because I know you have a personal relationship with her, so I'm not sure how much she has d- divulged to you or how much you can. Mm-hmm. Um, but how likely do you think she is to run in 2024? Because it's seeming like, at least to me, it's sounding like it's about maybe a 45, maybe 50, 50% chance that she does it. That she does not? That she does run. Oh, that she does. Half and half. So, I was surprised. So, that was obviously a pre-tape we recorded before Christmas. But, like, I was surprised at the time that she was so open. Like, she seemed to very much be indicating an intention to run, it felt to me, in that interview. And, you know, I've seen her give some other interviews since then in which she had a similar tone. And it is feeling to me, like, kind of likely. Like, I personally would bet on it, and that's based on her public interviews. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my impression that that was likely is part of why I've been wanting to have a conversation on this podcast and, and other places about how the left community feels about it. Not about her just, like, you know, in a vacuum, but what it would mean for her to run against Joe Biden when no one else is going to, and when certainly the neoliberals will, are clearing the field for Biden, you know, how much will the criticisms that people have of her, many of which are perfectly legitimate, prevent them from encouraging a run like this, a run that could foreground a lot of the issues that we've been talking about, that could re-enliven discussions around the environmental crisis and Medicare for all that have all but died in the Biden era, et cetera. What do you, what do you think now that it has become more of a proximate possibility? What do you think? I think that I would like to see her run. Yeah. Just for the simple fact that I would just like to have Biden should have a primary challenge to his left. Even if I, you think electoral, because I'm someone who, for me, I'm still on the primary game where uh-huh. I will vote in primaries. If the person I like don't win primaries, chances are I'm not going to vote in the general election for the corporate Democrat. Because uh-huh. to me, like I look at, for example, I look at, uh, I didn't vote for Eric Adams, just for simple fact. I don't think Eric Adams was no different than the, his Republican uh, opponent. I would literally think we would begin the same exact policies if the Republican had won. So I don't see any difference between those two. And Eric Adams annoying with his bald ass head. <laughs> Stop. I can't stand him. I, I like, like I was so, cause I recently had graduated and he had spoke at my graduation, but I didn't go. I'm so happy I didn't go. Cause I would boot him very loudly if I did go. 
<laughs> but um, I I definitely would like to see her run. I was somewhat you know intrigued by some of the uh, questions you guys answered, and how um, when you especially when you asked her about the uh, current you know actions of the Progressive Caucus, you know, with Pamela Jayapal, and that she was not as hesitant as I thought she was going to be in calling them out mm-hmm. in their ineffectiveness mm-hmm. and the fact of what they did to Nina Turner. So I do think that is a plus for her that she is not a part of the uh, political system in the traditional way as being, you know, originally elected official. She has not really, you know, that type of thing. So I definitely think that I would be intrigued. I would love to see um, because I was recently watching a live stream on Jordan Challenton's, uh, Jordan, I can't, oh, you can now he's Cheriton, mm-hmm. Yeah, Cheriton on his channel. And, um, they were talking about, you know, the, what, like, you know, third party, um, uh, um, type of, uh, strategies, what they should do. And I was really, intri- I would love to see an, a, also a third party. Like, I like Matthew Ho and I like, they were talking mm-hmm. about, like, um, don't try to, like, if you're on the third party wave, don't try to take over the Democratic Party. Try to instead take over the Green Party because there's already an infrastructure there and they're already mostly, at least policy-wise, on that side. I thought that mm-hmm. was an intriguing ideology. I would love to see, because I would love to see both of those happen at the same time. If it's possible, I don't know how possible that would be. And I'm intrigued to see what would happen on the left if once, you know, because I think if she does run, I think she would need to declare sooner rather than later. Why is that? Because I believe that that her effectiveness is going to only be as effective as as her ability to, uh, you know, get all the people on the left, get as big as a group on the left on on, on on her as possible. Be like, okay, this is going to be the candidate and we got, you know, we may not be able to get every, you know, leftist. Made up. Obviously, you know, you're not going to get the, you know, revolutionary black network people. They, they, they're not coming. But, you know, we can get the Kyles. We can, people who watch Kyle Kalinske, people who watch Breaking Point, maybe some people who, you know, watch yours, some people who watch Rising. I think her effectiveness is only going to come with her ability to, you know, wrangle that leftist energy because I definitely think it's not as potent as possible, and I think that's going to take time. And I also think that because I one of the things because I originally heard about this when I was watching Kyle. Supposedly, she has been down in South Carolina, mm. and I definitely think you know that's going to be like getting in the that groundwork in places like South Carolina, like. Um, for me, I would like, again, like we, we already discussed why uh, Biden put South Carolina force. I would have preferred to see something like Georgia be, should have been the first just yeah. because it's more of a purple state. And mm-hmm. I think the state that people are sleeping on, especially if you're dealing with electoral politics, um, North Carolina, I mm-hmm. think the Democratic Party missed a... Uh, Missed a Senate seat that they could have picked up. I can't remember the the, the, the lady's name. She was a black female, and she almost won. And I didn't even know she was running. This this time around with Matt and Matthew Ho's race. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was her. Sherry Beasley, you're right. Got forty seven point three percent of the vote. 
Yeah, so, and I didn't even know about, like, outside of Matt, the only reason I knew about that, I didn't know who the Democratic candidate was. I just knew about Matthew Ho running in there. So, obviously, he'd have been my guy. But I definitely think that they spent, like, I think it was a waste, to be honest with you, I think they wasted money in Florida. I mean, it doesn't mean trying, I'm, I'm not a Democrat, so I'm acting like I know, like I care. But I think that, and that's what part of my issues with the Democrats, I think they take the strategies off because I think they wasted money in Florida and that money should have went to um, Wisconsin and North Carolina because those Senate races were a lot closer and possibly could have been won with some extra funding. But, you know, yeah, that's if we're that. taking a closer look at this, I'd have to, I'd have to do some research. I remember when I was at the Intercept back in the 2018 cycle, I remember noticing that there were two Senate seats up in Mississippi and that the um, the Democrats had spent almost nothing in Mississippi. And Mississippi is a state where ad spends go a really long way because it's cheap. It's, you know, it's cheap. It's not an expensive advertising market the way like California or New York are. And you had... They needed to pick up two, if I remember correctly, and there were like literally two right there, so you can get your double bang for your buck. You know, every 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 ad for Democrats is something that could potentially have benefited both. Uh, it was Mike Epsi and uh, this white guy that whose name I can't remember, but was kind of interestingly and progressive, and I think had had like maybe a black child or something like that. I can't quite remember now. Anyway, and I remember being really blown away when I did a little open. You know, I did a little like. Um, digging around and I and I called and talked to some people at the DNC and found out that they were just for like they would not answer questions about why they weren't spending more in the state mm-hmm. and so I I mean like we all there's like narrative more broadly that says oh Democrats they know what they're doing and everybody's a mastermind and everybody's an evil genius and all of this and when you pick at a lot of this stuff even a little bit you realize there's all of this like full-on malpractice it's the way me it's on New York yeah, it's so because I remember you talking about that and seeing what happened in other states, particularly this past election cycle. It's either complete and like I think the DNC is completely and utterly incompetent mm-hmm. or they just don't care. Mm-hmm. It's one of the two because it's just blatantly incompetence that you would not, you know, see North Carolina and be like, oh, yeah, let's go to Florida. When Florida, you knew, I knew Florida was a lost cause cause before the election even began but i just felt like there was this need and this obsession with ron DeSantis. like oh my god i I, and i think you should just forget about ron DeSantis in florida he got florida for now and you just have to wait but one of the things i also think why i think marianne needs to declare early on is i think if she does declare early on that she will be a primary challenger Mm -hmm. to um biden it um, it, I think it weakens, you know, that because now you got, how long can they keep up with the same argument? Oh my God, she's disrupting, you know, she's going to cause the Democratic Party to split. You get that, you get all that talking points out early. And also, I think it makes it difficult for, makes it a little difficult for like people who are on the squad to not endorse her eventually. I think that her, I think if she comes out too late, I think there's ways that they can, like, you know, because I definitely think that's going to be an issue. I don't think they're going to be openly, willingly and to endorse her. See, that's so be... interesting. That's such an interesting point. That, like, Because what does happen if Marianne is in the race? Someone who obviously, 
overlaps policy wise with all these progressives. It forces the progressives to say it's more important for me to support the Democratic Party and like kind of show their hand in a way that wouldn't happen if nobody runs. Mm-hmm. And, and look, they, they're, they're going to have their excuses. You know, it's unlikely for Marianne's going to win. It's going to pull votes away from Joe Biden. It's going to be disruptive. We need to have unity because we're facing Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. I mean, they're going to say they're going to have excuses that seem palatable to a lot of folks. But I don't know. It'll it'll put people like Bernie in a really interesting position as well. And and my one of my other points about this is, again, one of the things that I would if that if she does do this, one of my particular sticking point is mm-hmm. when she gets the question. Let's say she gets some steam behind her back. I think if it's, if it's just her and Biden, I definitely think there's going to be momentum. I think this is going to I think naturally she's going to get momentum just because I don't think a lot of people are too hyped with Biden running again. Yeah, people so do not. Ooh, they people don't are want not that. here for Biden. I'm telling you, I, I like I know how it sounds. I, I know it's such a bourgeois, stupid thing to be basically constantly referencing what your uh, Uber and Lyft drivers say. But honestly, like it's COVID and I'm solitary and lonesome. So <laughs> those people that I talk to <laughs> out in the world, none of the campaign trail anymore are like commuting and I'm a chatty Kathy. So like I cannot tell you how many times this theme comes up. This theme comes up where people like nobody likes Biden. Nobody. I try to slightly steer every conversation of politics to try to get a sense of where people are. I don't ask leading questions. I just kind of I'm I just make sure that everyone knows that I'm open to criticizing Democrats because there's a presumption, you know, I'm a black woman. I don't want people to feel like we're gonna get in a fight if they criticize Democrats. And the way that these truths come spilling out of everybody's mouths from demographic groups that are supposed to just love and adore the Democratic Party, you know, about how much they are dissatisfied with Biden. It's crazy. So I think you're right. Like, there's there's definitely a lane there. And I think, and for me, one of her, if, for example, let's see if it comes to a point looking like she's probably going to lose the primary. She, I am very adamant that I think she, to me, one of my things, I would want to get her on the record early mm-hmm. about I am not going to endorse Biden if he wins the primary. Mm-hmm. It depends on one, how the DNC treats me during this primary one. And two, if that comes to play, I have a list of people that he's going to need to put in his administration. And I have a list of policies. I go, he, he gets to pick and choose what he, he can pick. You know, I need three people from here, this list to be mm-hmm. in your administration. And I need these three to five policies. I'll let him pick the policies. And he has to do it. And I think one of those policies should be complete cancellation of student debt if he mm-hmm. does not do it. And I think another policy, because should be, to me, to get on, you know, the worker side, should be a complete, because I still haven't, executive order still hasn't come about the seven days uh, pay leave for sick days for the, the train workers. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's going to happen. That would be another one. And I think that, and I, one reason why I wanted to get her to say, get that on record early is for when he denies it, she can say, well, listen, I get, cause that's my problem. It's too many things happen behind closed doors. And when you can come out, like, listen, I told him, like, people voted for me for a reason. And here are the policies and here are the people that need to be in the administration for the people who came with me to vote for him. He said no. So he decided that he didn't need this help. So, yep. And I think these things got to come out in the open. Too many things happen behind closed doors, and it needs to come out in the open. 
you, you, I agree with the audience here, Eric, but you are dropping bangers tonight. I, I think you're, you're saying a lot of truths. I'm a hundred percent with you on this. Okay. And before I go, this one thing, just because I was really intrigued about the manosphere thing, mm-hmm. my quick take on what's going on and why people like Andrew Tate, Kevin Samuels are, um, are popular, mm-hmm. especially between young men, is that I think that particularly now there is an opening awareness that what was that a lot of men are seeing that what society has promised to men, they have reneged on that promise. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem is that they see it as a promise that was reneged on. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was always an illusion. And they're not seeing that that idea of manhood, of the patriarchy, is an illusion that was uh, 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 propagated to create a certain, you know, uh, cognitive dissidence on how we interact with each other. So yeah. I, I think that what these uh, manosphere, these red people, you know, YouTubers do is they, like you say, everyone does, they put a hint of truths mm-hmm. in there and they, they are able to nitpick and pick out um, voices and, you know, clips of women saying certain things mm-hmm. that put them in a hypocritical light, be it true or not. Because I also mm-hmm. think another issue I have sometimes when feminists speak about the patriarchy is that, they talk about dismantling the patriarchy sometimes, mm-hmm. and then they will go out and say and nitpick and pick things out that they want to keep from the patriarchy. I'm mm-hmm. like, and it can't do that. I mean, like, so I think that's to call I, you out on it. I think the whole thing, like, look, I don't, I don't like it when I hear the women saying, "I need a man who makes six figures and is six feet tall, and if you're not all that, you ain't shit to me." Like, I like. But when I hear, because I know, like, we, we, can, we can talk, Eric. You know, we know what the Black, in particular, discourse is around a lot of this stuff. When I listen to it, it feels a lot like people who feel like, you, you talk about the social bargain this not being fulfilled for men. It's like nobody's social bargain is being fulfilled because capitalism is failing, and everyone's looking for a scapegoat. And mm-hmm. instead of the real scapegoat, that we're all trying to bring down in the context of this kind of like socialist left movement, they're going at each other's throats. So the women, you know, the women are tired of, of men who treat them poorly and they don't get anything out of it. They don't get marriage. They don't get companionship. They don't get love. They don't get support and they don't get money. So they say, well, I might as well just try to be honest about the fact that at least I'll get money if I'm going to be treated poorly, you know? And the men say, well, I, I can't get a job. I can't, you know, support, you know, my people, my life and a family in a traditional way that I used to, I used to think that was expected. If I wanted the men that makes it through and I have all these benefits and attributes, well, I'm going to exploit the system because I can. And it's all, it's all a mess. And it's all coming from, I think this place of scarcity. It's, it's all scarcity mindset playing out in these various perverse ways. So I have a certain degree of compassion, if I'm going to be really honest, for, for all of it, despite being repelled by it. And when the context of some of the ways that like the conversation is happening in the black community in particular and the way it's compared to like white discourse, it's very, very painful because I, I think that some of the reason that came to Kevin Samuels and like some of these black folks are the center of it is because the scarcity is more like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like all of these problems are exacerbated in the place where there is more scarcity for all of the reasons that we understand historically within the black community. And it's just very painful to watch, to be honest. Uh huh. It definitely is. But yeah. That's all I really wanted to say. It's always great talking to you. You have a 
Good night. Happy New Year's. Keep the faith. Thank you. You too, Eric. It's always a pleasure. All right. Jonathan Schmidt. Jonathan, have you put your last name on here before? I didn't change anything, if that's what you mean. Okay, Jonathan Schmidt. I've been calling you jo- the other Jonathan and Jonathan with it, yeah, the yin-yang. And... I'm not the real Jonathan. It, I, I want the, the rumper sticker should be the real Jonathan in 2024. <laughs> like, I'd rather see the real Jonathan than Marianne Williams send it personal. That's just me, though. All right. Well, I don't know. I don't know how you know how, how likely that is to to happen. We can we can ask Jonathan, the real Jonathan, next time he's up. But what else is on your mind tonight? Uh, well, checks and balances, kind of. Okay. Eric said behind closed doors, but I have a little bit different take on it. Although I think I know what he means. But I was in Amanda's room. It must have been yesterday or the day before, and I made mm-hmm. this analogy to a court, like your lawyer. But it's not that kind of a court. It's like a king's court, like with a jester. But you imagine that there's like 15 jesters for every courtier. And then that they're not dressed in stripes and bells, but they're dressed like in robes that, you know, the king gives them robes. They look like everybody else. And he even gives them titles in in his cleverness. So now it's when you walk into this situation from outside, the murmur of it might sound normal at first. The jesters will do that thing where they mimic you to sort of make fun of you. But you sit in there for a while. And you realize nobody knows what they're talking about. And they're, they're all just sort of like, they all, it looks normal, but everybody's LARPing. And then you kick open the door and there's a riot outside, but they're LARPing the revolution too. Sort of reenacting the 60s or whatever. I know I jumped through time, but that describes, yeah. that describes Congress, uh, Twitter, uh, cops, lawyers, juries. Like, and so the checks and balances are, none of them are working. If you have a, like, okay, what's the, what's the legislator supposed to do? They're supposed to write the laws. But if Bernie's out there saying, we just got the 700 page document yesterday. And now we're supposed to, like, your job is to write the law, but that's been outsourced to corporate lawyers. Mm-hmm. So what Congress, they have one job, one job, and none of them are doing it. Mm-hmm. That's the, their one check and balance. And then you have the executive branch, as we interact with it, are like cops. And they see their job as to enforce the law as written. If you ask them, that's what they'll say. But that's not. The check and balance of the executive against the legislative is to not enforce the law. And that's not just like the pardoning of people. That's like if you're a cop and you have a law that you disagree with, you don't think it's just, it's not just your right. It's your duty to say, no, I'm not going to do that. But they don't see that as, so that's check. That's not working either. And this exact same problem with the jury it doesn't take 12 people to read the law as written. It takes 12 people to decide where justice lies, if anywhere, in this situation. But they don't like if you have somebody who's oh, like, guilty of possession of marijuana or something. It's like your duty to say not guilty because you think that law is bullshit. That agency extends to every single individual. But nobody sees it that way. And that you're a lawyer. Are you educated out of that way of thinking about checks and balances? I'm really asking, like, do they see it that way? So, I mean, I think one of the most perverse things about the law is that you're inculcated to believe that it, like, works. <laughs> LOL. So, yeah. <laughs> you're, it's, but it's, I mean, it's like, sacred. the process. Of, yeah, yeah the, the process of going through a very expensive education um, that is a credentialing education at the end of the day that enables you to then jump through the hoop of paying the money to study for the bar exam and then paying the fees to be a bar attorney. Like it's all, 
you know, all of the gatekeeping and credentialing is not to prove that you are good at what you're doing. It's to make money, right? But once you go through that process and have invested so much, like quite literally invested money and time, you are going to be more inclined to trust the system and want to protect it and gatekeep it once you're in and, 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 you know, continue to shore up the bona fides of its value, of its value. So you're, you're, you know, moreover, uh, apart from just being a part of the system at that point and wanting it to have the same integrity and like to want to kind of pull up the ladder behind you when you're in school, unless you have some of these radical professors that are sprinkled around here and there, you're taught the lesson of how the law works, how it is consistent. You learn about civil rights and constitutional law as like a series of victories that have shown how the law and the reason of the law overcomes everything else. I mean, you do have some of these lessons about how like, oh, well, we, we, we had like Kuramatsu and we decided that Japanese internment was constitutional or, you know, oh, we had, uh, we, we celebrate, um, uh, sorry, what's the one where Harlan's descent, um, I'm sorry, I need to eat dinner. I'm a little hypoglycemic. But we celebrate some of these big civil rights cases and ignore the bit at the end where, you know, they say, oh, you know, black people, you know, should have these rights, but not Chinese people. They're super gross and can never really be American. You know, like we kind of like edit that part out. (laughs) Um, And you, you get a sense of kind of a natural bend of history toward goodness. When, in fact, one of the reasons I loved my professor so much um, that I'm always talking about is because I had him initially for torts. He was my section leader. We, you know, the classes are divided up into, like, smaller sections. And I had him for torts. And in the context of torts, so tort, tort law is, you know, kind of traditional harms. Someone punches someone, someone gets hit by a car, a train falls off the tracks, damage is caused. Like, traditional harm. And it... There are a lot of cases, it, because it's like a comes out of common law, and it was basically does you know developed out of like regular schmegular things that were happening. Farmers mad at each other. You broke my windmill, sort of cases. There's a kind of organic development that has a kind of commonsensical nature to it. But as a consequence, there's a lot of like it, like um, inconsistencies. I would say, and it's very much like all law is, but I think a little bit more transparently so, driven by what people's social norms of right and wrong are, as opposed to any like edict or like like principle coming down from above. It's like I kind of like that though, like the, the idea of people's idea of what's right being more involved, because to me, as a def- if I were a defense lawyer, I'm really I'm not just I should see myself as working against the law itself not just against my proving I'm innocent of some breaking some law, right. but in a way you're right. trying so to that's... convince the jury that this law, like you should be attacked. But I feel like that tactic would fall on deaf ears. Like to try so, to right. convince so what, the jury what was that so the law is wrong. About, what was so transformative about this professor is that he admitted it, right? And he walked us through a series of cases and explained to us that like, even though it's being presented to us that this was a natural outcome, one could imagine it very differently if other aspects of the fact pattern were emphasized. So like there's this, famous case that I've long forgotten the name of about a, like, I think it's, she's an Irish immigrant that comes through Ellis Island. She's a little girl. She's traveling alone. She's not literate. She can't read the signs, blah, blah, blah. And a doctor at Ellis Island in a lab coat, an adult who speaks a language she doesn't understand, 
says you got to take this vaccine to get, you know, <laughs> LOL, get the jab or you're going back on this three-week trip to Ireland, which you barely survived in the first place. And so she gets the jab and then she is one of the few people who has an adverse reaction to the vaccine and it's whether or not she's allowed to sue. So the court decides, well, of course, she's not allowed to sue. She accepted this bargain. She knew what she was doing. She accepted the risk, blah, blah, blah. And if you pick it apart a little bit, it's like, well, what was she supposed to do? Did, was she, did she freely have the choice to accept this bargain? Did you, could you really fairly say that she knew what she was agreeing to? If she couldn't read and she was a child and she was intimidated by an adult in a lab coat in a foreign country and all of this stuff. And it becomes very obvious that it all depends on who you think is really vulnerable and whether you think the interests, you know, there should be more done by a country, a state with power to protect the interests of immigrants, or if it all the onus should all be on some random seven-year-old girl who's traveling across the Atlantic by herself. And to this day, people will come out differently on that based on your politics and your sense of fairness and personal responsibility and all of those other kinds of things. Your idea but of it freedom is very, and how very rare. somebody is free. Yeah, go ahead. Right, but it's very, very rare for any law professor to really set it up and ask you the question like, okay, corporate, I also had him for corporate law. So is corporate law is it right to structure a whole legal uh, arm of the law to protect the interests of shareholders? Are shareholders really the most vulnerable constituency that we should design this entire legal system to protect? Obviously, the answer is no. No one's protecting the environment. Nobody's protecting children. Nobody's protecting men mentally diminished would say that, animals. Yeah, obviously, the answer is no. You know, like I think there's a lot of people who think that property is the the point of law. You know what I mean? To protect property, if, they say possession well, is nine tenths of the law. But yes, but that, that's the point I'm trying to make, Jonathan, that like in law school, all of those things are generally accepted as true without questioning. You are, your law is to protect property. The law is to protect the shareholder. And everyone accepts that as perfectly fine and good. So that we're saying the same thing. That, that, that is why we have the problems that we have, 100%. Yeah, the, like a conversation with Robbie. I, this is, I already know like how every conversation will get. This, he bothers me. He bothers me like a lot. It's like we were talking about, if, if I would say China is buying up land, because they do this. They like, why would they buy treasuries when they can buy land and then raise the price of it and then rent it out? Be, he would freak out. And if the American government started doing that and say the Bay Area, just like imminent domaining people out, gentrifying, mm -hmm. raising the price, his head would explode. But if, but if private money, private capital using an influx of tech money from all over the world does the exact same thing, all of a sudden he doesn't see the problem anymore. You can roll up a deed to a piece of property like a Harry Potter wand and wave it at a person like Robbie and cast a spell of blindness where they just don't see the problem anymore. They're like, well, it's his property that he bought with his money that he earned and he has the right to do whatever he wants with his property, 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 property. It's like property is like a god to the law and the people who... You know, see, they only look through this one little lens. Like I've been remiss calling people, uh, I've been equivocating calling people stupid, like because I, he's not an intelligent person. He's not even an unknowledgeable person, but he's got this like affliction of he can only think through this one ideological lens and it sort of hamstrings you. And I feel like that's pervasive in the education system and in culture. And yeah, and even on Twitter, like Twitter, I know like you and Steven Donziger, like I owe my career to Twitter, journalists find uh, audiences on Twitter and I, and I get all that, but like, it's got the same problem going on. Like the new censorship isn't blocking you out. It's drowning you out in an ocean of nonsense. I the blocking still happens. And Matt Taibbi will tell you how much it happens and how like 
remarkably small the accounts are that the CIA will choose to tell, tell Twitter to uh -huh. shut down. But it's more like drowning you out. And there's like, you're always going to be there. But it's structurally a place where the, the certain narratives were never going to get the same traction as the nonsense narrative. It's always going to be present, but in pr proportion to this big, not like Cornell, Cornell West will be on there, but he's not going to be blown up and get all the bot farm to push him to the top. They don't push you down. They push the nonsense to the top and they invite not Cornell West to speak, but ta Coates to speak at all the neoliberal universities. It's like you're never going to win in that space because it's got the same affliction, this property worship affliction. This no, like no checks, not a single one of the checks and balances are doing their job. Zero of them are doing anything resembling checking or balancing anything. And all three are supposed to like check and balance private power. But all public power needs to check and balance private power. There's no other reason for it to exist than that. And it's not doing that either. I'm just yeah, ranting I mean, now. I, but I, you know. No, I think you're, I think you're right, but I don't. Like, and this goes back to Amanda's point earlier, I don't know how much you're ever going to convince those institutions to to basically be self, to, to, to put, to generate the kinds of people that will destroy the institution. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, the way that these institutions are designed now, it's like yeah, asking- You're never going to be given the education you need school. to free yourself. Perpetuate it. Right. So, I, I mean, Harvard is a business. All these businesses are a business. So, like, I, I agree with what Amanda is saying needs to happen, and I think that there are outlier cases where people like Ralph Nader or Stephen Donziger, you know, can come out of these institutions successfully, you know, Chris Hedges, Cornell West, and be, because of the platform and privilege that those institutions give, can have some successes and get more of a platform than they would have ordinarily and, and, and be useful, but I just wouldn't put all of my eggs in that particular basket because that's not what those institutions are designed to do. And people who come out of those places halfway decent are very much outliers. And I'm not, you know, like I, I'm telling you guys, like, and I know this doesn't make me sound good, but I have to be really honest about it. Like at no point, and I'm sure there's somebody somewhere who was a better person than me. So I'm not, I, I'm not trying to absolve myself of anything, but I want to be honest. There was at no point was there a conversation about the ethics of working at places like McKinsey and Bain. It was, it was, we all got A's in our life. We all worked hard to get here. We all used to being kind of academically elite. We, we got here to get the best jobs possible. The smartest people go to work at McKinsey. I want to go work at McKinsey. McKinsey has great maternity leave. McKinsey will pay to freeze your eggs. McKinsey will give you all of this money. Like McKinsey will pay off your loans. McKinsey is a springboard to X, Y, and Z. Those were the conversations that were being had. And everybody thought they were the luckiest little girl and boy in the world to get to go work at McKinsey. It was not an ethical conversation. Law school well, was a little better at I'm not here to people who want to work at McKinsey. I think that's kind of the same logic as conscience consumerism. Like you can one at a time your way out of these sorts of things when that's very rarely the case. Like with, mm -hmm. with, with plastic bags at the supermarket, yes, okay, that's the case. But that's the exception. That's not the rule that you can just like each and exercise your individual power at an individual level. Okay. I, I, that's how I got, I got was practically fired from substitute teaching. This is okay. I've, I've never told this stop story before because I was teaching a ninth grade class and left with a curriculum that had a worksheet that said what it said, the modern, the origins of modern terrorism. 
And the first line item was the 1979 Palestinian attack on the Munich Olympics. So I spent the entire 45 minutes telling them how that's uh, not the origin of modern terrorism. Uh, uh -huh. There's a lot of quotes from one general, Smedley Butler, who wrote a book called War is a Racket, going all the way back to 1913 in Tampico, Mexico, and Nicaragua and China. He was like, yeah, Capone did three districts. I operated on three continents. I was a gangster for capitalism. Uh -huh. Like, but they was, they didn't. They told me you're supposed to do the itinerary that's left for you. I'm like, that's lying. I'm not going to stand there and lie to these children. Now, they never told me I was fired, but I was locked out of frontline.edu where you sign up for the uh, openings, right? Mm. So, like, but what has this accomplished? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, look, the, the fact that they, like, locked you out does, on some level, kind of speak to the fear that what you were doing in that classroom could be impactful. So it's like this little, it's like this catch 22, like, do I think that we should put our, our eggs in that basket? No. Is it obvious that there's a threat to people who are great educators and who do get in people's minds in these institutions and that there's value there? Yes. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the scenario you just described and I'm like, wow, that would be a great beginning of a movie. Like to see some like <laughs> radical left substitute teacher try to give this amazing speech to a classroom, kind of like the beginning of, um, what's that terrible Sorkin show, Newsroom? Right. You know how in the first episode of Newsroom, Jeff Bridges gives a speech at a college about how America isn't the greatest country in the world and it's kind of like neoliberal problem, but everyone loved it at the time? Yeah, but they um, tell me I'm being political. Well, this is a trick because, like, what, if, you, if you say anything that questions the Richard Nixon's narrative of history that comes in the seventh grade social studies book, you're, quote, being political, as if their version of where the middle is isn't very political. You know what yeah. I mean? There's no such thing as an apolitical take on history. Every word is political in some way. What we need is pluralism, but that's not allowed. You're supposed to, like, stick to this line. And anything that deviates from that line is, quote, being political. And that, that, it's, see, it's a trick. Like, they hold, they're the arbiters of where the middle is. But the middle is like this weird, Yanis Varoufakis was in Australia once teaching Chinese students. He taught Karl Marx like it was the truth for three weeks. And then he turned around and taught Friedrich Hayek like it was the truth for three weeks. And his students were like, but Yanis, you just told us the opposite. He's like, I oh, know, I'm just telling you what they said. And they said, well, Giannis, which one's correct? He's like, that's for you to decide. And they mm -hmm. said, no, you're the teacher. You tell us. He's like, no, you decide. That's pluralism. You teach everything and then you have them fight each other to get it out. But like, there's no pluralism. There's just this very hyper narrow mainstream narrative that comes in these textbooks that are published by McGraw-Hill, which if you don't know, is owned by Standard & Poor's, that we're never going to have anything in there that they don't want you to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I I guess you don't want to be um, in my movie, Jonathan, but I still might write it about you regardless. <laughs> I, well, but the movie has to have an ending where, like, I get, I get to do something afterwards. But the point well, of that is they just squash. To, what I was trying the, to get to was the part. The point is that that's the opening scene. That's like the, it's like your origin story. It's like your villain, your hero, I should say, your hero origin story. There's a thousand of these stories, but where does our power lie after the fact? I'm out here sanding and painting the bottom of boats for way too little money. Like, what, what do I do? You know what I mean? I'm surrounded by people who do, wouldn't understand a single word what I just said. You know what I mean? And, and St. Mary's, Georgia, on the coast, 
because I left Iowa because, you know, fuck all that. But it's just like there's there's nobody there's nobody. It's like a it's a desert in so many ways. And there's just nobody interested in marching on town hall for what? Like there are, this is like the end of the world. Maybe it's a bad example as a place to use, but where does their power lie? That's where these people are always, we're always on the edge fighting for our just like sustenance, fighting against each other, like undercutting each other for wages, becoming Uber drivers, scabbing. Where does the power lie? I I know that it's, I know that it feels very isolating. Like I, I know that, but I also, my, my life experience. I mean, like, I, I feel like there are ways that our society has been designed to make us feel that way in a way that is in some, in some parts artificial. I don't, I think that the conditions are such that the things that we talk about and the way that we feel are actually extremely broadly felt and very, very common. And that even though people might not have the language to, 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 our, to, to say it the way we might say it or to know what kind of historical precedence exists for a path out of this feeling and out of this place, there is definitely a lot of solidarity there. And I think that the diff, very, very difficult job for all of us is to figure out how to make people feel less isolated because we aren't, in fact, alone in feeling the way that we feel. I think you're right that the feeling is present and that some of the feeling of solidarity is present, but we still haven't washed away the ideological goggles that Robbie has on. Like, how do you get people to see it differently? Well, I'm working on get... Robbie. Leave Robbie to me. Robbie's my personal <laughs> <Okay>. project. <laughs> uh, she's got such a punchable face. I don't know. I just bother you. Guys, okay, look, leave, leave Robbie. Leave, Rob, look. He's not even good at being a libertarian. That's what bothers me. And then it's just this discourse. Isn't that a good thing? (laughs) No, no, no. I still kind of am libertarian. If the libertarian is the worry, like what you don't want is concentrated power. And if the libertarianism in me is just the worry that the public power becomes the dragon that you hired it to slay, then I'm, then I, yeah, if I think that's a legitimate worry, I do think that's a legitimate worry. So I'm still a, I'm a left libertarian. Yeah, I, like I know. Up. I know what you're saying. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I appreciate you, Jonathan. I'm going to try to move through this queue okay. a little bit as we head into I'm our take two, take hour long. three. Right. Thank you. Keep the faith. But I appreciate you. Keep the faith, Jonathan. Good talk. Uh, Shelly, what's on your mind tonight? Sure. Oh, hey, Bri. Um, nothing much. Well, I kind of feel like Jonathan said a lot of stuff that <laughs> I would say myself. So, Jonathan, you're not alone. <laughs> yeah. We're all out there. I mean, it just, it just is, it's just, it's really, really, it's just really alienating. And it's, it's the type of thing that causes despair. And it's the type of thing that makes people either kind of like give up or redouble old efforts that have failed. Okay. Well, next time we'll just try that method, but we'll try it harder, Mm. you know, Mm. which is, which I guess is kind of like, as far as the whole Marianne Williamson thing goes, mm-hmm. I'm obviously not a fan. Okay. Yeah. Talk to me about why. Air foreign policy. Okay. So yeah. in, the, in the context, so I think that, you know, we, we, I think there's broad agreement on what the critique is there, but in mm-hmm. the context of her running against Joe Biden, are you saying that you would just kind of be indifferent, sit it out? Would you still be interested in voting for her in a primary no, I, I wouldn't vote for. I'm only ever voting third party from now on. And what if she were running for third party? 
I would vote for her. Okay, so it's not necessarily entirely just the substantive critique. It is the the, the structural choice to run the, as a Democrat. Yes, I, it's it is a I think it is a totally failed strategy. Um in our current context. And I, I, I just, I do not think that it works. I mean, it, now at the same time, it's not like I'm going to sit from the sidelines and snipe if she does run in the primary and she happens to be on the debate stage and she makes some good points. Mm-hmm. That's great. It's the same thing that, you know, I kind of, that, that we've talked about before, like the, like half of the battle is just exposing them for the craven fucking greedy, self-interested capitalists that actively hate the working class and will do everything it is that they can to propagandize them. That's how little they think of you. They think Mm -hmm. that they can just run propaganda campaigns all the time and keep you inside the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Like, this is one of the things that I already know that they're going to do. DeSantis is the right-wing version of, like, a Bernie Sanders, in my mind. He's say more about that. Well, he's like Mint Press just recently did that whole like their whole expose. Like his foreign policy is right in line with the with the establishment. Right in line. He was over there overseeing a torture program for Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. He's all down with the military industrial complex. But what they're doing is they're trying to throw all the MAGA Republicans, their domestic red meat with Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. and still maintain hegemony over foreign policy. So that's I I think that they're totally trying to pull the Trump energy into DeSantis because I've heard quite a few like I watched this stupid it's that one guy that does those um he takes like those those focus groups and I saw I watched one of him and he specifically asked about DeSantis and I'm talking about there were only two out of mm-hmm. like the 15 people that he interviewed that that were like no he's not good DeSantis isn't good he's a trick and everyone else is like, well, he's more polite. We'll be yeah. able to get more of our agenda done with Ron DeSantis because he's more establishment, but he's still anti-establishment. No, he's not. He's fully establishment. This was a recent Frank. Was it Frank Luntz? Yeah, it's been a couple. It's been a couple of months ago. But yeah, it, it, it's that's the energy that I get from that. And that's kind of how I feel like running inside the Democratic Party is. It's. And then I think about like all of the research I've done on like the cultural cold war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you know anything about that? No. I, is this like hate ink stuff? No, the cultural cold war was a CIA operation that was run. There are tons of names that are on the list. It, the, all of the members of the Frankfurt school were part of the cultural cold war. Mm-hmm. Um, Hannah Arendt that Chris Hedges likes to quote so often was part of this. And it's what Gabriel Rockhill refers to as the global theory industry, where the CIA wanted to prop up a compatible left. And by compatible left, they mean a left that's compatible with capitalism. Mm. And that is their goal. It doesn't mean that those people are actively like meeting the CIA under a bridge and taking money. Mm-hmm. But what it is, if those people maybe unknowingly with some of their petite bourgeois ideas, they get promoted. They get invited to the seminars, their books get pushed, they get invited on the podcast, they become the speakers for the left out in front. Mm. And all of their ideology is wrong. And they and that's the reason specifically why they promote it. Because they know it's divisive and they know it destroys the left. 
And that was the entire point of the cultural cold war. Well, that's disputing. Right. <laughs> I, well, I mean, but there are, I mean, there are ways to inoculate yourself from it. You know, I mean, I, I guess it's just kind of at least attempting to just sort of see through some of that, but like once it, but see, that's kind of what I'm saying. Like once you even know that that's even a small amount of inoculation. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do with it anymore, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, what, what, why do you, why do you think that someone like Chris Hedges, when you say like, Oh, he likes to um, quote uh, a rent a lot. Yeah, like do you, do you think that he's doing it in good faith? Do you wish that he wouldn't? Yeah. Do you think that there's still good ideas, even though there's some other aspects? Like, I don't, I don't know enough about Hannah Arendt to like know what she's saying that is 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 mollifying or destructive to a left movement. What he specifically, what he specifically does is that he usually quotes Hannah Arendt whenever he refers to totalitarianism. That was one of the big, like her book, like her like totalitarianism book. That was a huge push. Because it basically said the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany are the same. They're both totalitarian. Mm. There you go. They're both totalitarian. They're both the same evil. They're both the same thing. Then you have the whole, what we see now, red, brown, Putin supporter, authoritarian. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. It's the same trick. Same playbook. All over again. And he, and he's, and he falls for it. But, but does, he but still does, has great ideas about tons of other things. Does Hedges... Falford, does Hedges make that kind of a critique of the Soviet Union? I don't know that I've ever actually spoken to him about hmm. the Soviet Union per se. I would imagine I've heard him over and over again decry it just randomly. You know, in the Soviet Union totalitarian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was a rough time. <laughs> that was not a good time for the world. Hmm. You know, it, it, shit, shit was hard around a lot of places. But, you know, one of the things that kind of always drives me crazy is that no one it's like it's been lost from like history and probably some people here know that but like we're talking about immediately after like the bolsheviks kind of had the revolution and and you know all that other type of stuff 14 countries invaded the soviet union and got involved in their civil war and tried to overthrow it from the very beginning and they had to fight that off they were a feudal country then they had to build up industry because they knew that nazi germany was coming from a judeo-bolshevik judeo-bolshevik hmm. They knew that that Germany was coming from them, so they spent all this time like, "Fuck, we gotta make we gotta make tanks and airplanes and all this other crap." They're fucking coming, and they did. And the Soviet Union lost twenty seven million people. Yeah, like yeah, it was a fucking shitty ass time. <laughs> Just don't know how else to explain it, you know. And so no, I mean, I think all those, I think those people, it, the critiques are in good faith. Like that, that's kind of what I mean. They don't have to have someone that's nefariously under a bridge taking money or meeting in a parking deck or whatever. They don't have to. There are plenty of people. All they have to do is wait for the wrong shit to come along, and that's what gets promoted. I mean, think about how we kind of talk about whenever we talk about Ibram X. Kendi. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same thing. You mean insofar as he's out there sounding kind of superficially good to a lot of liberals because he's saying racism is bad, but yeah. that he, you know, has a take that is unnuanced, flat, and jarring enough to enough people that it actually creates more friction rather than solidarity across disenfranchised groups 
and ultimately has no real systemic critique. Yes, correct. Because it's a politics that's based on um, individualism instead of solidarity and unity. Um, yeah. So, and individualism is individualism is literally the prime basis for what we call classic liberalism. Conservatives and Democrats, classic liberals, the private property relations, yeah, the individual ownership. You know, kind of the, the same thing that libertarians such as Robbie will sit there and be like, well, it's his money and it's his property. He bought it and, bought it. and so it's, yeah. it's always rooted in the, in the property relations of individualism. Well, let, let me ask you this, class. going back to the Marianne conversation just for a second. Mm -hmm. Why not? I mean, part of the problem here, and this is this is kind of what I've been trying to get at for months now. If everyone has these objections to Marianne, mm -hmm. fine. What is like who else is going to run like who else? so this i mean this is the same argument that i had with chris hedges and shama like a year ago right. the, the, here are the possible outcomes ignore the general election say it has nothing to do with us we're sitting it out and we're just gonna have to complain about biden for another four years or it's DeSantis because biden can't win okay but but we can't really complain because like we didn't really get in the mix like we didn't and we weren't involved two Support whoever runs. In this case, it's looking increasingly likely that it's Marianne. Be hopeful mm -hmm. that despite having criticisms with her on various fronts, that she is at least foregrounding various aspects of the left policy and holding Biden to greater account than any elected official in the Democratic Party currently will. Right. Okay. Three, run someone who you can do all those things I just described Marianne is doing, but who you also substantively believe, you know, is not a you know, is free from some of the criticisms that she's gotten and is also additionally running outside of the Democratic Party, even if that means that their chances of getting publicity, any attention, um, broader political notice are relatively slim. And whatever you think about option number three, it seems pretty clear at this point that that just is not even an option. What I would say is that the working class should never cede any area of a fight yeah so no no to option number one i would agree no 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 not at all um typically what communists advocate for is the united front so you know sure use every angle you want to run in the democratic party fine i'm not voting in that but i understand your reason for doing it you want to vote for you want to run for a, a separate third party that has a little bit more of a base like the Green Party than like say the Communist Party. Okay, fine. If that's your tactic, go ahead and do it. I'm not going to screw with you. We're going to do our thing. You know, however it is that we're going to just decide to do it, and you know we'll hash that out. But but the left doesn't screw with each other. So how many? So to me, that does sound like you're saying that number one is not an option because number one is not participating in any way. Oh, well, I, I guess I was thinking number one was, I, I was thinking number one was Marianne runs in the Democratic Party. No, that was number two. Oh, okay, sorry. No, no worries. So I, I guess what I'm getting at is, I, I'm not trying to be difficult, but no, I'm unless someone pops up that I don't know about or that we don't know about right now, no, the only person who looks like they're running is Marianne. Right. <sighs> I mean, like, yeah, so, what, what like so here we are. Like, I guess my frustration is, like, being characterized as, you know, being indifferent to the critiques of Marianne by mm -hmm. 
But when I see it as like, I, you know, I would love it if Matthew Ho ran. I would love it if there's a whole plurality right. of options. I can't force anybody to do that. And I also understand why they wouldn't want to. And so here we are. So and I guess on some level, like, I guess I find this conversation about, given if Marianne's going to be the only one, on some level, I find this conversation about, you know, the reasons people don't like her to be kind of pointless. Mm-hmm. Like, are you going to, are we going to, are we glad that she's doing it or are we aren't? It's not like we're the day she wins. <laughs> you know, the day she's the president of the United States, we can have a conversation about all of her flaws. But given how remote that possibility is, it almost feels a little like what are we doing here? Well, I, I, I think, I think my my point is is that um, if Marian, if if she wants to run, if she can make good points, that's great for her. But people have to have to start getting over the mentality of critique being an attack it's not necessarily an attack the I left mean, is saying you're, in, you're not great on foreign policy which is really why i i, I think I there are some people who have made a critique that's not an attack i think there are a lot of people who have fully made attacks right oh trust me I, i'm well aware <laughs> of the brutality <laughs> of of the left and how much we just it's it's this politics of absolute extreme purity mm-hmm. and it's just like my whole thing is is i started out in 2016 as being a huge bernie bro mm-hmm. i fucking bawled like on april the 8th whenever he um dropped out of the race it was my fucking birthday which and i don't give a fuck about my birthday really all that much but i remember like sitting there and bawling whenever he dropped out like i was absolutely a bernie bro and you know what now all of a sudden i'm over here repping the fucking soviet union and china all right like shit changes like i'm not gonna sit there and begrudge any lefty that has different views than me i had those views at one point like everyone just needs to give each other a little bit of grace and allow people to come to terms with what our system is and then use the correct whatever correct strategies and tactics you can possibly think of to break the back of the system yeah yeah solidarity together that's what solidarity means but we seem to want to have solidarity pity solidarity pity parties all the time and that's the splendor so yeah oh man i'm sorry i didn't mean to depress you and you're no i just i i don't know i just i i I was like okay you know, like, I don't know what to do with it. Like, okay. Uh, it, it almost feels like there's, like, an allergy. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my food delivery. I gotta answer. It almost yeah, feels like there's an allergy to, like, like, an indifference to the genuine benefits of hearing, like, someone being residually excited by Miriam. Like, God forbid someone be excited. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's great. I I mean, I the only reason that I'm going to sh- continue to show opposition and I'm going to continue to, cr- to, to critique her foreign policy is strictly because I'm like, I'm glad you're excited. Here's something to watch out for. Here's something that put put it in the back of your mind. There might come up a, t- a period of time where she ends up being disappointing, just like the squad, just like everyone else. Don't don't get your feelings like don't get your feelings hurt. Don't get too upset. Don't double down on on whatever whatever thing. Just 
think more critically, think more tactically, come up, you know, come up with a different method. You yeah, know? But I, I mean, I guess a- maybe what I'm re- responding to is that I feel a little like, yeah, like at least in this space, we we know. Like, I don't think that anybody has to be reminded at this point how disappointing everybody is. And so it does feel like we spend 98% of the time talking about how horrible everybody is and how nothing's going to come of it when we all are very, very well of that and spend absolutely zero time strategically trying to figure out how to try to make the best of a situation that's happening whether or not we wanted to or not. So, like, neither of us are sitting here working for Marianne. Nobody here is, like, choosing this of all of the possible p- potentials. But this is happening. And it just it does feel a little like, why, like, what are we doing? Like, what is what is the desired goal of this? To make, make sure everybody knows that Marianne's going to disappoint them and there's no point paying attention to her? Okay, well, everyone here is basically in that spot anyway. Do you know what I mean? Right. I mean, well, that, that's, that, that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's like, I'm more concerned about the left not tearing itself apart. And that does not, I'm not including the politicians. I, I don't care about them. I'm talking about the people, the people on the ground that make up the left. Mm-hmm. That's all I care about. Like, I would like for there to be less hatred and division among us. And then if that can be achieved, maybe whenever something comes up, we aren't still fighting over the bullshit and the disappointments. And, and we're just, we're just more unified in how it is that we're moving in a stepwise direction towards some progress because continuing to have the same arguments over and over again, isn't helping. Yes, it does. There are some moments where contradictions get sharpened or something like that. That, I mean, does that make sense? I mean, I'm I, and I'm ultimately optimistic, really, honestly, there's been a lot of just class consciousness and like waking up that people have done. I mean, there, there has been, which is why, I don't know, maybe I'm premature in thinking that everybody already knows this stuff. Um, you don't have to be a dead horse, but it does feel like I have been trying to get people to be serious about how to exploit this situation for the best for months. And we are nowhere. There's nowhere. There is no consensus about how to, you know, what we want out of, out of a Marianne candidacy, what messages we think that would be most effective for her to push, even if we are not thinking of it as her necessarily winning. You know, what political movements could be or be emerging out of this, what fundraising opportunities could emerge out of this, whether or not she could run and put together an organizing campaign that didn't get dismantled the way that Bernie said. Like, none of that has happened. Zero conversation, because we keep going round and round in a circle about how Marianne Williams' foreign policy is disappointing. And I don't want to minimize that. But, right. like, that is going to be true today, tomorrow, the next day, and whatever happens in her candidacy. And, like, it just seems like a squandered opportunity to me. That's all. I mean, I think this I, – I agree that – like, I don't know how many times it has to be said. I agree that Marianne Williams' foreign policy disappoint, is disappointing. Mm-hmm. And, but unless you want to take number one, root number one, and ignore the, the presidential race – Say it's none of my business. I'm doing mutual aid. And I'm and I'm, you know, organizing, which is completely legitimate. Unless that's the, t- the posture that you take, then you have to engage with the reality of what what is before you. You know, and if you if you do if you don't want to do door number one, then the the question becomes, what do you do with the reality of Marianne's running? What do you do I mean, with like how do you maximize it? Yeah, I mean, oh, see. I'm not, <laughs> I'm very bad at self-promotion. So I, like, I, I wouldn't even know how to like 
market something. But I mean, I I think the point I think the point for lefty media for Marianne is give if you want to make her better as far as being against Biden, then whenever she comes on lefty shows, then she must be asked tough questions that and she not not to necessarily like tear her down or do anything like that. But she's going to come uh, she's going to come face she's going to have to face tough questions. It is it is it would be better to have that as more of an in, an internal sort of like Marianne, your foreign policy is kind of shit. What say you? Instead of her getting on the debate stage saying something like something super Zionist or super pro-Israel and then literally the entire left just ah we just nuke each other. I agree, but I also think that I think there should be an expectation that she is who she is. Like, she's going to say that disappointing stuff. And the question is, her being kind of fully baked, what do you want to do with it? And if the answer is, like, screw her, I don't care, then that's, again, legitimate. I'm not arguing that anybody should be gung-ho. But I also don't think people should have the expectation that she's going to be talked into a bunch of stuff by going on some podcasts. No, I don't think she will be either. But once again, it is a form of we ha- at some point we have to kind of think like the working the working class or, or the people that are even halfway interested in her. At some point, you're just going to have to trust them. If she fucks up so bad that she doesn't win them, that's not their fault. That's her fault. You can help her in however way that you can prepare her or like give her at least a little bit of airtime and hopefully because she's probably not going to end up being president, but maybe by the time we sharpen her up there, she can really go for a one-two punch against Biden and really give him one on the chin or something. Yeah, I mean, I think my my perception is that some folks, I think this is kind of Bernie's problem too, like some folks perceive some of the critiques that are coming from our part of the left to be exaggerated, not representative um, of the broader society and things that, are fringe positions that if they take, they frankly will have a harder time winning point blank period. And that there's something kind of unserious about this part of the left so they can ignore these criticisms. And you saw that in the way that they've run some of these campaigns. Mm-hmm. You know, the critiques we've had of Bernie, some aspects of Nita Turner's campaign, et cetera. Yep. I have been very clear that I feel that that is wrong. I cannot prove it. I am not um, a pollster. I am not someone with a great deal of political experience. I understand why someone might ignore me, but I feel in my gut that that is incorrect. And I feel that for a candidate like Marianne Williamson, she very much needs the full buy-in of the left in a way that a different kind of candidate doesn't. And that she like, she can do a hard pivot to the center or something if she were to win a primary, but like she's never going to get anywhere close to that if you have the left as divided about her as they are. I have made that case. And I just don't think that people agree with me. So here we are. So like, to me, it's like, I, I like, I fully plan if she announces to have her on and we can talk about all of these things, but I don't anticipate changing anybody's mind because I think that there's just a baked in perception that going full socialist lefty is not a winning proposition. So here we are. And, and like, I, I, that is not me apologizing for anybody or saying I think that's okay. That's me just having a sense of having had these conversations. This is where we are. So people just need to figure out what they want to do with it before it's too late and nothing comes of it. 
that's right. I think that's just my final word on that matter. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's kind of like one of my whole, <clears throat> one of my whole entire points. I can't think of a successful revolution that, that was truly one at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. That's the left critique. Mm-hmm. You know, it's using bourgeois democracy, which kind of what Jonathan was talking about, all of the systems of checks and balances, they don't actually work. The reason why they don't work is because it was set up that way. It's a bourgeois democracy. It's an illusion of democracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Let's, I mean, yes, always, I mean, seed candidates in to fight in the arena of illusion. Sure. But it's not going to happen. It's going to have to be from below, not from above. And so I'm not going to jump in front of Marianne and stick my neck out to defend her personally as an individual. And that, and that's it. But, you know, please go up there and, and try to throw some stones and, you know, create some chinks in the armor. I'm down for that. I mean, sure. I think the, the reality is that it's the ability for her to throw the stones is even diminished by having like not support, you know, and, and that's not your job. It's not your responsibility, Shelly. And I understand why you feel the way you, that you do, but I don't know. I think there's an aspect of this can, that can feel a little bit like cutting off the nose to spite the face where it's like, I, I you know, I, I will, def- I think, I think I will, def- if Marianne gets unfair criticism, of course I'm going to defend Marianne. You know? Sure. I mean, if it's unfair criticism, I, what I'm saying is I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop a bullet that she walked directly in front of. Like, it's not then my, like, I'm not going to do that for her. Like if, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? It's like, yes, obviously if it's unfair criticism, defend it. I feel like some, but if yeah, she, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like if she screws up, it's on her. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm a little ambivalent about that. I, I, I do think it's, it's, it's a weird position to kind of want something from her to say, I want you to be out there advocating for all these issues for us. We want you to take the slings and arrows. We want you to spend this money. We want you to take all of the public insult and harassment that comes with running for office. We want you to do all of that. And also like, I'm completely indifferent to you as a human being. I don't know. There's something that just doesn't quite sit well with me. And I don't expect that you share my feeling. I'm just trying to parse through why I'm having the reaction that I'm having. I mean, I'm going to get off here because I've taken way up way too much of your time and I want you to get to everyone else. But I mean, I think part of the reaction is, well, number one, I mean, she is a nice person, you know, like she's a nice lady and and she does mean well, like it's, it's kind of difficult to just be like, I'm indifferent to that. But like I've said multiple times before, once you put yourself in the position where you as an individual have decided that you are the one that is able to shoulder and bear the burdens of the poor, the working class, the working poor, all of those things. If you take all that on and including all the foreign policy, are you going to not bomb and destroy other countries and kill hundreds of thousands of people over there? You are talking about just global fucking humanity and you're deciding that you're the right person to take that on you have you're running for a position of power and i'm i'm only interested in how you perform in that position of power and i'm no longer interested in the personhood of you 
on a personal level, that can be different. But that position of power is the thing that is a threat to the working class and the poor. So yeah, that's we'll why we'll, that's why we'll see what happens, Shelly. And I appreciate you yeah. calling in. I think yeah. what you're Thank saying. Thank you. Thank was- you, Brie. As always, always lovely to talk to you. Keep the faith. Keep the faith, Shelly. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, Nicholas, what's on your mind tonight? Nicholas, you're unmuted, but I can't hear anything from you yet. Hello? Yeah, there you go. What's on your mind tonight? Hey, what's going on? Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. The, um, <laughs> what did you get? What did you get to eat, by the way? Sorry, you hear me trying to eat my salad as I'm muting and unmuting. It's just a salad. <laughs> but what's on your mind tonight? I was, I was listening to your. It was a while ago, but now I was listening to the, to the Andrew Andrew Tate discussion, mm-hmm. and the manosphere. I'd actually called about something else, but that, that just absolutely fascinated me. I I wonder to what extent, you know, like I just, I think that the the kind of public space that people often refer to as a public space, so like the media, Twitter, et cetera, is so dominated by, by the most ridiculous versions of ourselves. Mm-hmm. But that, that I think it gives a wrong impression. I mean, Andrew Tate, I, I know like a dozen people I went to school with throughout my life that are exactly Andrew Tate. I mean, I, you know, he reminds me of this kid who said he, he saw Santa Claus. Well, There's always that one kid in the class who says, I saw Santa Claus or I beat him up. Or I, this is like I, the second I, grade I, class or like a college class? How <laughs> me understand? <laughs> no, this is like second grade. But I mean, like that guy morphs into the punch me, into, punch me in the stomach guy. Who then morphs into the I do eight different types of martial arts guy. Who <laughs> then morphs into the into the you know if you use this cologne you'll get any woman you want guy. <laughs> I mean it's just I don't know it just I but I mean I people are getting all like all like activated about this dude. But I mean like I know so many people like this. So help us understand the, what do you think it's all about? What do you think the appeal is, and why so many people kind of end up in this? Because he's a loser. I mean, I don't know. Like he was a loser, and this is how he's he's filling that space, right? He, what's, at some point in his life, he felt like things weren't working out, and then he p- made up a girlfriend in Canada, or he pretended that he'd found the solution <laughs> to become a billionaire. I mean, I, I feel like I mean, I I feel the same way about Trump, right? I mean, anyone who is a serious person would never have taken Donald Trump seriously, right? And like any serious business person, right? So, I mean, like, they, they, they talk about, like, what banks he had to go to, the business investments he's gotten into. I mean, does it not strike anyone as bizarre that this billionaire had all this time to be on multiple TV shows? I mean, honestly, <laughs> looking at what happened with Sam Bakeman fried it is perfectly legitimate seeming. Like, the whole, our whole financial system is a bunch of fraudsters, and Trump doesn't seem like that much of an outlier to be but it isn't, right? I mean, that, that's the thing that, like, I think the media sphere has just become so, you know, it's so Rupert Mur- Murdoch eyes, right? I mean, like, Rupert Murdoch just takes the most extreme things and make it feel like it's, it's right around the corner. You know, it's like these, these people who live in Minnesota who, whose number one issue is immigration, people crossing the border. They just, they just whip people up to think that 
that the banks are stealing from you, that crypto is, I mean, what percentage of investments is crypto? It's a small amount of, it's a small amount of investments. It's a small amount of the financial system, but people just hype it up because it's, it's what's, it's what gets clicks. And I mean, there's always some dude, I mean, I, maybe I'm dating myself, but I remember the back of like Rolling Stone magazine. It's like, we're, 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 we're what, being inundated. What by the was on the back ads. of Rolling Stone magazine? <laughs> well, the back of Rolling Stone. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I, I mean, obviously it wasn't the main thing, but like, you know, like, uh, you know, if you take these pills, you'll become taller. If you, if you take this cologne, you'll meet lots of women. I mean, the guy earlier said he wanted to be half, but no, no adult wants to be half. I mean, when I was 60, when I was 12, I wanted to be half, but I mean, you grow out of that. I mean, if people don't grow out of it, then yeah, that's, you know, that's an issue. I mean, like, I think that thing he said, I mean, I, I, I don't know how, did he say 50% of all young men are, are virgins? Is that what he said? Something like that. I, I don't remember the number. Or if it's true, I don't know. That seems wild. <laughs> I mean, as a woman, I gotta say, even though I do think that, like I was saying before, there was like more of an emphasis on looks for straight men than there than there has been historically, and all of that. Right. Like men really undercount how much being nice to someone can can really be alluring. Yeah. I mean, the bar is so low. I'm not trying to sound dangerous <laughs> right now. <laughs> But honestly, the level of basic communication and like kindness, yeah. <laughs> like what women talk about, like I would like to be support supported, right? It's not just like financial. I mean, like yeah. if you're gonna be a, an asshole, then you might as well have money. But like, what would be really nice is if someone cooked a meal or ordered a meal, right? <laughs> For me, <clears throat> if someone else took care of some of the house cleaning duties. If someone could, you know, just split the rent with me. Taking judicious <laughs> notes. You know. So order a meal, split the rent. What's if the other someone one? could listen and, like, respect my job without a bunch of one-upmanship or feeling like it was somehow a threat to them and yeah. their masculinity for me to have gainful employment that I think is important. You know? Like, yeah. I don't know, like... But I, 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 it, it, it just does not like no one is sitting around like all this peacocking and like being an asshole. Like I, right. I don't understand. I mean, it works if if you're talking to someone who also has low self worth, and unfortunately, society works on women to have low self worth. It's trying to drill right. that into us at all times. <laughs> but it, it's it's yeah. so dark. Like just you know, be nice, be clean, yeah. be clean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> and, and everybody should just like try to better yourself when I'm single when I become single I go into super overdrive of like self betterment again that's why I think a part of this stuff appeals to me like I do believe in like I exercise more I get into shape I experiment with my style like I wear funky things that I might not wear because a man might tell me that's a weird hat you know I, well, you I express myself I, yeah I, I find new hobbies like all of my huge like professional growth moments have been mostly during periods of single death. Like, I do believe in self-improvement. Like, try to be the kind of person that you would want to date. You know, I know right. what my flaws are. Be more patient. You know, I understand those things. I don't think there's anything wrong with, like, a self-improvement mindset, per yeah. se. But, like, I don't know why being mean is so core 
to all of these things, and, and why yeah. so much so much of it is 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 misogyny. It's it's like this exact same thing. Like there are women who are a little delusional about right. their their value in the dating market. I mean, dating market that's like a gross <laughs> term. All of this, is. Yeah, but yeah, like yeah. these the men that they're talking to are similarly delusional. Ain't nobody got shit. Like nobody has anything. <laughs> nobody looks that great. We're all struggling. Okay, so like. How about a little sympathy <laughs> across the line? But is that kind line? of a thing, though? Like, I mean, I, I, when you listen to people, I mean, the 666 and all these, I mean, these are ridiculous people. These aren't, so, you know what I mean? Like, on some level, I, I, I feel like what's lacking is, is human interaction. I mean, it's like, you know, you know, have you ever seen Anchorman? Yeah, of course. All right, you know when he goes and he, like, pulls out the, the fucking cologne? Mm-hmm like Sex Panther by Odeon. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you watch that and you took copious notes, like, no, it's not going to work, bro. Like, well, try and, I, I don't know. And some of it is just inexperience. I think some people try to, try to be too intelligent, too, uh, not too intelligent, but try and have to, try to have everything sorted out by the time they're in their 20s or be so wise by the time they're in their 20s. I, I just think people need to just chill out. Like, this is not... All of these things are ridiculous. Andrew Tate is ridiculous. He's ridiculous. Kim Kardashian's ridiculous. I mean, I, I sort of thought everyone was in on the joke. But now I'm, I'm I mean, if what he says about 50%, I mean, that's, that, that, that figure can't be, <laughs> that figure can't be correct. I mean, people still go to college and stuff, right? Oh, I don't know. Maybe like, should be a... <laughs> I, think that, I think that probably, I'm not trying to be funny, but I think that probably porn has something to do with it. You know, not not needing, you know, feeling like you don't need necessarily to be with someone to see naked people and have sexual arousal. Uh, and, you know, not I'm not that I mean that like in a porn shamey sort of way, but I mean like no, no, I get it, I know what you mean. It's it's a lot of effort to date. People are disappointing, <laughs> and we all have laptops. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, 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 I can see reasons why that aren't necessarily like sad. I mean, like, depending on, maybe you think that's sad, but, like, that, really that people have found other ways to be satisfied and other kinds right. of relationships that they value, and they live their lives more online, and a consequence of that is, like, less physical, intimate interaction, in addition to less physical uh, social interaction. Yeah. And also less, just less life. I mean, I think, I just think that's, I don't know. I, just, I think it's wild. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that people are... That, that, I mean, if, if, if it is true that there is this manosphere and I mean, I listen to Jordan Peterson and all these characters, but I mean, that's not, those are not serious. They're not serious people. They're not, I don't know. Like, I think, I think we've lost track of like when, when, you know, if he was, a, if, you know, if he was a serious social psychologist, he wouldn't be on podcasts for the most part. That's right? not fair. It is, it is sort of fair though, right? I mean, I, I listen to like, you know, I mean, I, I work in banking and I, I'm, I'm constantly bombarded by people sending me like links and, and tweets about, about stocks and stuff. And I'm like, bro, if, if it's in the newspaper, it, it's no longer good. That's how that works. Okay, but stocks, if somebody's, if stocks somebody sends, not a, the same sends thing a tip out, it's relationship advice. The value of relationship <laughs> advice disappeared because right. someone else has acted on it. <laughs> Right, but I mean, I just think, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know. That, well, that's guess what? Why. Tell I mean, me this. Apparently, yeah. you're, you're so unbothered. You, you're, <laughs> cool. 
you've got your whole romantic life straightened out. So what's your deal? Are you well, are well, you well, in, well, in a relationship? Well, let's not quite go down that road. I mean, okay, well, think wait, hold on. All right, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. No, I'm not in a relationship. Okay. But I'm not, I'm not angry about Would it. Would you like to be in a relationship? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, do you feel like it is easy to get into a relationship? Or... No. And why don't you think it's easy to get into a relationship? Because you have to meet somebody that you like. They have to like and, you. And why is that difficult? Because because people are multivariate. Lots of people are. Some people are cool. Some people are disasters. You know, there's there's all kind there's all kinds of barriers that get in the way, right? You can go on a thousand dates that go well, that go badly. Some people are cool for like three days, and then you find out three dates, and then you find out they actually don't really have any chemistry. I mean, it's just a it's a complex. It's a complex thing, but I accept that it's complex. So do you think it's harder now that people are more multivariable now or more complex now than they were 50 years ago when you had higher rates of people getting married and perhaps higher higher rates of relationship satisfaction? Does something actually change with the people? Or why do you think you're experiencing these difficulties? Well, I, mean, I think, I mean, I probably, I mean, I, I, we should make this a me thing. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I accept that I'm probably pretty picky. I, I accept that I probably um, wanted to delay things just because I wanted to fuck around longer than 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 lots of my other friends. Who okay. Did not want. Oh, when I say fuck around, I mean like you know, uh, just you know, not <laughs> not take things seriously. How's that? But you know what I mean, like. Okay. Now here, now we're getting to something, Nicholas. May I ask Nicholas how old you are? I'm 46. Nicholas, have you been married before? No. All right, Nicholas. <clears throat> Here we have a apparently gainfully employed 46-year-old man. I'm sorry? Yeah. <laughs> I agree, yeah. Apparently. Nicholas, do you live in like a major metropolitan area? I do. Well, you're a banker. That's usually how it goes. And I'm not mm. asking you to dox yourself, but let's just pretend you live in New yeah. York. Let's pretend. Okay, <laughs> let's pretend. <laughs> okay, so here you go, Nicholas. I have, from personal experience, knowledge of the fact Funny. that there are any number of beautiful, well-educated, successful yeah. women, yeah. or do are you, sorry, are you interested in women? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, women in New York, in the New York area. Yeah. Many of whom would very much that like to be like. partnered. Excuse me? That I would like. Yeah, there's literally millions, so I'm sure you could figure out one that you like. Okay. And yet, Nicholas, mm -hmm. here we are. Here you and I both are, quite long in the tooth and single as the day <laughs> is long, despite having lived in this major metropolitan area for many years, and I can't speak for you, but me, I was dating like it was my literal job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I acknowledge that I probably wanted to keep as many options as possible. I, I want to live like an overgrown child. So I, I, I have no issues with, with acknowledging that. So what, what was the value? What, was the, what were you afraid of giving up? What was the value of keeping your options <sighs> oh, open as long great. as possible? And do you feel differently about that now? Yeah, Are I feel differently to, about it now. At what point did you decide like, oh, actually, I, whatever I've been holding out for, like I'm not, like I don't know, I no longer, I no longer want the choice. I want to settle down. Well, I, I don't think I was ever holding out for something that I, I think, you know, I think there, there, 
Mm, let me answer. Let me see if I can answer the question. <laughs> I, was about to, I was about to blow the eight there. But, um, what makes difference? I mean, I just got to a stage where I was like, you know, fuck this. I don't want to. Do, I don't. I, I. I. I don't want. I don't want to. I don't. I. I. You know. I. I felt like. I felt like I wanted a, a a life that was more suited to my to how I feel today. Like I just. What does that mean? When I was in my twenties, I was just like, oh, like I like. I don't want. I don't want. Any, I don't want to be tied down. I don't want to be in any situation. I, I don't want to be in any long-term situation because I just. I don't know. I. I didn't know where I want to live. I didn't know how I want to live. I had this relatively strict work life, so I was like, I just don't want my my personal life to be strict. Were I, you concerned that you would get with a partner who wouldn't want to move to a new city with you? Who no. Wouldn't be willing to do that with you? No, I just didn't want. To, I just I I wanted to do what I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. Which is not great for a relationship. And now, do you actually no longer not want to, you know, don't you still want to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it? Not as, not in the same way, no. I mean, like, I, but I've also, like, I also started to feel that it was a pretty empty type of experience. <laughs> okay. Um, what was once kind of fun just started to feel like, okay, I don't, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't find this fun anymore. I just want to. I just want to hang out. I want to meet so what, somebody I like and hang so out. What kind of may I ask? What kind of things used to feel fun that don't feel fun anymore? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I should have gone. Just, maybe my name is not Nicholas. Uh, how's that? He's <laughs> 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 Roger. <laughs> I was going to be a Roger. <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you about this military budget. <laughs> <laughs> what do I think? Of, I mean, like I don't know. Like I just, I just don't want to be involved in any drama. Whereas, like you know, there was a time when I just, you know, I, I wouldn't say I like drama, but I didn't find drama exhausting. I didn't think it was stupid. Was, what I'm, is drama? Like drama, just like nonsense. Like you know, like I just, I just wasn't, you know, like I said, I just want to do what I want to Nicholas, do. Nicholas, I want to do it. Nicholas, I humbly mm. submit to you that you are the drama. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. You're I mean, talking like, about. Right. I don't want to do nothing. Nobody else want to do. I'm trying to be hard out here in these streets. I, I like. I. You were sound like an agent of chaos, sir. <laughs> yes. All right. That's fair. You, Nicholas, sound like every man. And can I tell you? I see women in the chat talking about this too. Women don't have the luxury. Look, me and my last yeah, two eggs rattling around in my ovaries. I don't get. Like, I would love to not have to do anything. I would love to get married when I'm 16 <laughs> years old. I would love all of that. I don't, I also, yeah. I, I want to be, I want to love it with you. I also don't want to do anything anybody tells me to do. Yeah. I also want to nap whenever I want to nap and yeah. eat, you know, half of a, a tray of leftovers for dinner. And yeah. I, like, I love dogs. I don't want a dog. Like I don't want responsibilities. And I understand this about myself. However, yeah. I know that that is my reality. And I'm not yeah. like, I have no confusion about why it is that I'm the situation that I am in. I'm making choices. It sounds yeah. like you have a little bit of this, you know, Peter Pan thing going on where you want to have your yes. cake eat it too. Yes, 100%. And I, and that's why, that's what I mean about like being honest about it. Like, I don't think, I don't think I was, I don't think I was, I was discovering myself. I just was just fucking around. Like I said, I was just doing what I was kind of wanting to do when I wanted to do it. And I thought that was sort of my right as a, as a young person. And, and, uh, you know, and now I'm older and I just don't want to do that anymore. It took me longer to mature than okay. I think most. <clears throat> All I'm I will being, say, you know, I'm pretty clear on that. That's that's completely fair, and I'm not trying to pile on you, Nicholas. All, <laughs> I, I'll, all I would say is that 
I think mm. that at no point does anyone not want to do whatever they want to do. At yes. no point does anyone want to take on responsibilities. Responsibilities mm. suck. However, yes. people decide that the trade-off is worth it for them because of all of the benefits that come from having a relationship with someone and having someone who loves them and supports them and can prepare deal meals for them on occasion so that every night of your life doesn't have to be spent either spending too much money on delivery the mm-hmm. way I just did or slaving away over a stove. No, I agree. And I think that's the stage I've gotten to, but I mean, like, you know, I think, I think some of that has to come through, through figuring that out. And, you know, for some people, they, they get it a lot faster than I did or, you know, get it faster than others. And some people it takes them some time. And I guess I would fall into the category of some people it takes them some time. Okay. Well, I'm glad you look, you are where you are. Nicole. <laughs> Let me know, meet some nice young ladies in the New York, you know, tri-state area. Not that that's I've been told far. that there are millions of them. <laughs> There's literally millions of them. <laughs> literally. I, I got a Rolodex for you that you wouldn't believe. <laughs> yeah, would, would I not believe it? <laughs> All right, good luck out there, Nicholas. And consider, I don't know if you want to have children or whatever, but consider an, some old, these older vintage women. Older I, vintage women? Yeah, maybe women that are in their <laughs> late 30s terrible. to early 40s. <laughs> instead of popping down lower, as you might be inclined to do. Um, but anyway, the point, but, but before, I mean, we don't have to make it a me thing, but I, mean, I think that, I just think that, like, people have to try and find people that are good connections for them and not focus exclusively on like these app type decision the app type decision making because i just think it's i i I think that's dim-witted i think ultimately connections don't happen through through these kind of you know like uh a la carte dating okay well i've never met i haven't met someone who wasn't on an app in like 20 years i gotta say where else are you meeting people in bars what do you mean like anywhere in bars honey get out of here (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I'm not hanging up in bars. Second of all, no one's meeting people in bars. First of all, the bar the bar thing is a myth. I have never once in my life seen someone do a pickup at a bar. I have seen really? pickups in dance club situations where you're physically dancing with people. But just sitting in New York, you know how it is. It's gangs of girls, throngs yes. of girls in big right. packs, sitting yeah. at bars and restaurants, spending hundreds yeah. of dollars. And right. men are not going up to them. That is not a thing that's happening. Everyone's just rotating around each other like solar systems that are never gonna collide. That's your experience? That is 100% my experience. No, no, come on. There are people, you, you, meet, you don't believe, what? People pick up people in bars every day. Thank you, Kate Nuani, especially for black women. I wasn't trying to racialize this, but 110%, especially back when I was a young woman out in these streets, Y'all have had this little racial revolution since the Obamas and Michelle Obama. Now everybody's talking about Zendaya and all that. When I was coming up, not that, like, I was interested in black men, but, like, nobody Mm -hmm. was checking for black women. So, like, there's a whole, there's a lot of layers. There's, like, a lot of layers to this. I won't get it. This is not a, this is not about me. And it's not about you either. We're all talking on hypotheticals here, Nicholas. All I'm saying is I think the apps get a bad rap because the problem is in the app, that random stranger that you know nothing about in the bar, you're also making a jump decision about based on their looks. It's no different than the app. In fact, the app gives you more information. You know their hobbies. You see a few pictures. Like, you can talk to them first. Like, it's not the app's problem. Now, people do decide that they have too much inventory. Like, they have all of the 
they have all of the men in the world at their fingertips and therefore they don't give people as much of a chance as they might otherwise on the app sometimes. But that was never my problem. I go out, I, like I said, I thought it was a numbers game and I went on a hellish number of dates. I like dating. I don't think the, the apps are the problem. I think, I think that how you use the apps can be a problem, but the apps aren't a problem itself in and of themselves. But that's neither here nor there. Oh, it looks like he might have nexted himself. So Nick, <laughs> Nicholas is through. It's time for you to take over. What's on your mind tonight? Uh, hey, what's up? Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Sweet. Um, yeah, thanks for uh, taking my call. Uh, I, I appreciated the uh, the last call. Uh, that that was fun. But, but it's gonna uh, gonna be a bit of a whiplash for what I uh, came here to talk about, but I <laughs> had some thoughts about your episode with uh, Don Zinger. Yeah. Uh, cool. So uh, whenever, whenever you, whenever you do a episode about the environment, I'm always very intrigued with the theory of change that you and your guests discuss for how to, you know, achieve the, uh, political and structural changes that we know that we need in order to address the environmental crisis, the climate crisis, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, uh, I think in, in this episode, you started, you talked about uh, the possibility of a more uh, potential, uh, you know, a, a more radical militant uh, uh, approach um, you brought up uh, the book, somebody brought up the book, uh, how to blow up a pipeline. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, the, some anecdote about people dismantling a coal fire power plant <laughs> was also brought up. Um, and I have not read, uh, how to blow up a power plant, but I guess from what I understand, the premise is just that, uh, the environmental movement so far has failed, uh, because obviously it has not, uh, produce the changes that we need and therefore we need to resort to property destruction because that you know uh actually targets what we're fighting and it 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 disrupts capital and i i don't know i i've again i haven't read it so i maybe i'm straw manning it but i'm not really a fan of the the sort of like oh nothing nothing else has worked so let's 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 try this other uh, tactic because I think it, it not, not because property destruction can't have a strategic purpose in some instances, but because I think it distracts from what the main task for the environmental movement should be, which is organizing and building a, 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 a you know, cross-racial, cross-class, et cetera, movement. Um, now, I know that just saying organize without being more specific is not particularly uh, helpful. So I guess let me try and be a little bit more specific. I think that um, there is a massive rift between environment and labor. And the best thing that environmental groups and organizers can do is try to make inroads with labor organizations like unions and workers centers and et cetera. Um, because, uh, because 
and, and and this this rift is because of you know decades of of the fossil fuel industry and reactionary politicians and uh, corporate media constructing this narrative that increased environmental regulation will you know destroy will 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 destroy jobs and uh, you know it's something that that we can only afford when we are in a good economic situation, which obviously we're in an economic crisis right now. So, um, yeah, this, this, this narrative is, is obviously a, a divide and, and, and conquer tactic. Um, but it's extremely pervasive and it's very effective in my opinion. And it's been leveraged time and time again. For example, when Biden canceled Keystone back when he first became president in 2021, Fox News, uh, brings on a pipeline worker. Uh, and he says, you know, we, this, this has been a really hard time for us. Uh, it's been really hard during the pandemic. We haven't been able to get much work. Um, and this, what Biden just did here, uh, you know, destroyed a lot of good unionized family sustaining jobs. Um, and so obviously, you know, I don't think Fox News is operating in good faith and has, the best interests of the working class at heart. But I think this, regardless of that, you know, this is still a very powerful narrative and it resonates with a lot of people. And because of that, yeah, again, I think the environmental movement should be doing everything they can to, 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 to talk with labor groups, you know, talk about shared interests, talk about common ground, you know, do all the organizing things. And also needs to uh, do campaigns to, uh, to to just move past rhetoric. You know, we can we can talk all day like like the Sunrise Movement does about like the Green New Deal and the Civilian Climate Corps. Um, but these are just a complete abstraction. And obviously, you know, these these jobs are not bare. Um, and you know, we we all, of course, know that the Green New Deal is not happening anytime soon, given our current Congress and and uh, current political climate. Not to say that it can't ever happen, of course. Um, but I think uh, Jane McAlevey put it very well uh, in her book. I think you had her on the podcast quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but she said uh, her quote is, it simply doesn't matter that well-intentioned progressive environmentalists reject the divisive frame of jobs versus environment. The progressive environmentalists have yet to prove uh, they can move from rhetoric to reality about good unionized jobs. Um, And so something that environmental groups can do, campaigns that they can work on are, and an example of this is what they did in Portland. So a few years ago, I think like, it was from 2015 to 2018, a bunch of local groups like local environmental justice groups, racial justice groups, unions uh, uh, formed a coalition and passed a ballot initiative uh, to to um, uh, put, put a tax on Portland's largest corporations to raise tens of millions of dollars each year to fund uh to fund, you know, green infrastructure and public transportation and, and weatherization and, you know, a, a just transition and, and to, 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 to create jobs for a bunch of workers. And they also, uh, outlawed new, new, uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, um, 
in the city. And so I guess this, this is, I think, what Jane McAlevey, one example of what, what Jane McAlevey is advocating for is to, instead of, you know, just saying like, oh, you know, there's, there's, there's a hundred jobs for every, uh, for every, uh, fossil fuel worker who loses their job in a, in a, in a transition away from fossil fuels is to preemptively create these jobs so that, so that, you know, they're, they're, they're there. Um, uh, when, when the, the, a coal plant gets shut down or, or, or something like that. But I've, uh, been talking a bit, so I, I'm going to try to wrap up, uh, real quick. Um, I think, yeah. So, so just in conclusion, this, uh, you know, environmental groups, I think need to, to really, to, to do the work and actually lay the ground for, lay, lay the groundwork for, uh, uh, for the, this cross-class coalition by, by, you know, just, just organizing first and foremost and talking with labor groups and, you know, creating, uh, jobs through local campaigns to absorb the workers who will get laid off. Um, and I think we are sort of kidding ourselves if we think that, like, we just say, like, oh, you know, if we, if we start blowing up some, some segments of a, of a, of a pipeline, um, that will be a sufficient replacement for building this this cross-class uh, multiracial yada yada um movement so yeah i think if i if i said anything more i'd just be like uh re repeating myself and not adding anything substantive so i'm gonna stop there yeah so i guess i would just say that i don't think that those things are mutually exclusive and i don't think that the lesson i, I also haven't read how to blow up a pipeline i'll i'll read it if i get you know before I get Andrea's mom on the podcast, I've reached out a couple of times. Hopefully we'll be able to execute that. But I, I think the, the point is that if the exigency of the crisis is what it is and people are having their property destroyed and their lives destroyed because of climate change and pollution, you know, as we talked about in the Donziger episode, then it's kind of questioning why we think it is okay or the law the world that we live in the rules that we abide by say that it's basically okay for exxon to pollute the way it does for the dakota access pipeline to be built knowing it's going to leak it does in fact leak and it affects water tables and communities all over the place but the property destruction that happens as a consequence of polluters is just considered to be a fait accompli and the kind of property damage that would prevent the pollution from happening in the first place is criminalized. And it's asking whether or not, if we really believe what we believe about climate change and the survival of the planet and all of these kinds of things and the millions and billions of lives that will be lost if we hit these climate tipping points, then why aren't we acting with the same kind of exigency? We see this in conversations about war, where it's terrorism until it becomes a war that the terrorists win. It's it's terrorism until it's the Boston Tea Party and we decide that the revolutionary soldiers were the good guys and defeated the British. You know, it's 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 the it, victors win the war. And if should we be on that kind of a war footing with respect to the environmental movement? And I think it's very difficult to argue against that. That is not to say that I, I think the points that you've made about the value of engaging with labor in ways that give the movement more credibility aren't also important parts of this movement. In part because I think you're going to get a lot of pushback when you start when people do start to do this kind of civil disobedience, as we saw with people who lost their ever-loving minds 
over the idea of throwing some soup at a painting that was protected by glass anyway. Um, so you have to build trust in communities for a lot of reasons if you're going to do this kind of work and make people understand why it is that you've taken these actions that are so out of step with what is considered to be acceptable in the public imagination. Um, but I think that everything you said is right and good. I just don't think it's mutually exclusive to the arguments that Andreas Malm are, and people like him are making. I would also point out, I think I mentioned this in the episode, there's this really great article in New York Magazine. Actually, I think I have a hard copy with me. Um, that contrasts Malm's approach with the approach of another um, environmentalist who takes more of a like love approach, which, you know, it's not necessarily my thing, but is not unreasonable. Where's this freaking magazine? I packed all of my um, New York magazines that I'm behind on. Okay, this one's from, it's from the November 7th to November 20th issue, the one with Britney Spears on the cover. <laughs> Sorry. But I strongly recommend that article to everyone because I thought um, it had a much better framing here it is. It's by, um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, I just flipped by it, and of course I just lost it. Um, now I'm looking at a weird article about the Democratic Socialists and their style, which is not anything anybody asked for. Okay, this article is called How to Live in a Catastrophe in Search of a Way to Think Clearly About the Planetary Crisis by Elizabeth Watt. Um, and I think it, it does a good job kind of going through the pros and cons of these approaches in a way that I think takes them very seriously. Both. Yeah, thank you. Um, I will definitely check out that article. I agree with uh, what you said. I, I agree that uh, these two approaches are not mutually exclusive. But kind of my point is that I think without without this latter this latter approach of of movement building, which I personally don't think is emphasized uh, enough movement building and, and, and local campaigns like with Portland, which I don't think is, is, is mentioned enough. Um, I think if we do, if we do one and not the other, um, uh, which is if, if we do, um, if we do direct action and we, and we resist uh, uh, fossil fuel infrastructure projects like pipelines or whatever, um, then, and, and we do that and we do not add it with, with the complementary, uh, organizing and movement building, then we are just, you know, giving, giving ammunition to the reactionaries to, to, who, who, uh, uh, you know, you use the, the same divide and conquer tactics that have worked for them for so long. If, if, um, if there is an, is, is an organization that is resisting, uh, 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 a, a pipeline again, for, for instance, and, um, the, uh, the, the company and, uh, all the pro pipeliners come out and say like, you know, oh, uh, you all, uh, environmental activists are just elites who, who want to, to take away, uh, Jobs from these good hard uh, uh, hardworking Americans. Then, if the environmentalists have not laid this groundwork and have not, you know, been been talking to the to the union that represents the pipeline workers uh, for for a while now and have not built this trust, then that divide and conquer uh, tactic is is gonna work. But if they if they have laid this groundwork and and they have, you know 
stood with workers and they have been pushing for for the creation of jobs uh for for the workers after uh after after the the transition away from fossil fuels then they can you know the, then then that tactic is is not going to be uh uh as as effective if if it's effective at all and so i guess that that's just kind of my point is that is that the there you know there there are there are many uh reasons why you may uh resist a, a pipeline that aren't for climate change you know it's 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 horrible for the local environment if if, if a pipeline sp- spills it's extremely devastating my in my home state of kansas there's just the largest inland pipeline spill in history mm. or at least in the united states mm-hmm. and um so you know there there are all these reasons but in in the long game of fighting climate change um we we need to you, you know just ju- just getting one uh just getting one pipeline canceled is is not going to solve the climate crisis but if we win over the hearts and minds of the working class so that they uh uh feel comfortable and ready to to take action and you know actually call their call their legislators or attend a protest or take more radical action uh for uh, a just transition then that is what what is going to win us the long game so that's i guess kind of my point no i i think that's i think that's right I mean, that's, I think that's perfectly right. I, I'm trying to find, I was trying to find what you were talking. Um, some clar- clarification. So this, this, this article says, um, mom's book doesn't really tell you how to blow up a pipeline. It educates readers in the much chiller affair of deflating SUV tires, an entry level form of sabotage that's been gaining traction in Europe and even some places in the U.S. Then it explains how to do it. Um, at its root, the planetary crisis is a race for time between the forces that continue spewing carbon and the forces that try to prevent them. Everyone knows we're moving too slowly. Why not consider sabotage? And then it talks about some folks that have you know, been doing stuff. It says, the 15,000 months of activist collective time and the 20 million spent on the Standing Rock and no doppel campaigns slowed pipeline completion by three months. From 2016 to 2017, Ruby Montoya and Jessica Resnick Resnicek, then ages 27 and 35, torched holes in the Dakota Access Pipeline across Iowa. They spent, before their arrest, not counting what would be likely long prison sentences, 10-person months and several thousand dollars, mostly on torch kits. Their investment delayed the pipeline completion two months further. So just, just contrasting just pure technique and how much money and time actually results in delays to these p- projects I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. That's, that's all I'll say. Um, and again, I don't think those are mutually exclusive, but I appreciate you calling in Nick. Um, keep the faith. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought that maybe you were gone. Um, keep the faith, Nick. Tosin, what's on your mind tonight? Bonsoir. Bonsoir. Ça va bien? Ça va bien. Merci. Awesome. Um, I think Shetty's kind of depressed me a little bit with the Marianne Williamson talk, so um, I'll probably save that for last. But um, okay. I wanted to I wanted to get um Jam's perspective, so I don't know if we can maybe call on him next. But let let me go through my things first. Um, I can call you up together. Go go ahead, uh, Joseph. Go ahead, go. Yeah, because I think I wanted to hear his perspective on the Kevin, whatever his name is, but I'm not really that interested in in the individual. Okay. Let me let I'll go I'll go through my things first. Um the 
there was a guest that you had on here, The Burn. Um, he was, um, it, it kind of ties into the gentleman that's, that you spoke with, um, new, Neutrino at the beginning of the call. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I don't know if you remember, um, her. She, she was a, tr- I think she's also a trans activist as well, but her thing was really, um, climate change and, um, climate change law. I don't know if that person would be a great person to sort of bring on to kind of supplement the conversations that we just had with Nick and it kind of like grounds it all rather than just in theory. And oh yeah. It, I remember do, her. Do, do what was her name? About? Yeah. I, I saw you say it in the chat and I had no idea who you were talking about, but now I remember her and I just have to figure out what her name was. For some reason, I remember that I was wearing this yellow sweatshirt when I interviewed her, a yellow sweater that I hate, but I recently wore on rising because I was I just trying that. to mix it up. And okay. I can, I can retro search this in my memory and figure out who she was. Yeah, I just feel like the, and maybe it kind of ties in what we're talking about with Shelley. I feel like we cannot abdicate our responsibility on the policy front. We're, like I said in the chat, we're not going to mutual aid ourselves to the revolution. Like we need to have an inside and outside approach. And on the inside approach, we need people like, like this individual that I've forgotten um, her name um, to tell us, I guess, the strategies that we need to take policy wise. You know how you had Steve, um, Stephen on, on the last call where he was saying, oh, I put forward this legislation. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that we need. We cannot just sit on the apps on the sidelines and complain all the time. Um, mm-hmm. it, it might view it wouldn't work but um that's me very into the Marion Williamson stuff no, that's number one number two I wanted to check with you was um ideas for new episode I don't know if you like this but a while back you mentioned you probably wanted to have a more diverse crowd rather than just maybe having um just men in in the chat or just subscribing and stuff mm-hmm. so um I don't know if this is quite reductive on my part but um there was a lady called Fluzy on YouTube that was recommended to you a while back. I don't know if you've reached out to her. There's another lady called Nappy Headed Hohopa. She kind of does like hair and makeup stuff, but her politics are really, really grounded in progressive leftist causes. So I think it might be great to sort of get some collaboration with those okay. kind of people. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Slow, slow down, slow down. Who is Fluzy? Can you spell that? Um, I think it's F L U E Z E Z. Why? Okay. On YouTube. And then nappy headed LOL Jojoba. Yeah, J O J O B A. Yeah, I'm with you. I got it. <laughs> I get the pun. Okay. All right, I'll check both of those out. So yeah, the the reason I'm suggesting that is um I think on some level both of them have talked about um like the music industry and how the music industry rips people off and all that kind of stuff. Um, you've been talking about the fact that you probably want to get artists like Cardi B on a podcast. Um, in, in my head, I'm just thinking if Bernie was running today, if we wanted to make the mu- music industry fairer, what would Bernie's policy look like? If Marion Williamson's running today, what would Marion Williamson's policy look like? And that way we might get a policy discussion that is mm-hmm. more leftist, but also it gets, I guess, the mainstream uh, mainstream pop guys involved in our conversation and get more leftists involved in the conversation, I think. Do you agree or do you, what do you no, think about it? I, I agree. And, and partly why I agree and I think that's important is that some folks have pointed out, I don't think this is true of um, the conversations we've been having today and the objections that have been made to Marianne today. But some people have pointed out that some folks that object to Marianne 
didn't have that in her foreign policy takes, didn't have that same energy about Bernie. And if there is a principled reason for that, which is to say there was enough that Bernie was saying right that I didn't mind about what he was saying wrong. If the same is true of Marianne, once we vet out the policies, then that should inform people's approach to her. If it's just widely inconsistent, that's not great. And if it's a matter of, well, I did, I accepted Bernie, but I shouldn't have, and now I've evolved and I have higher standards, that's perfectly legitimate. Um, but I do think that grounding it in policy, I don't know. Sometimes I think the, the volume with which Marianne has made some of her less popular takes makes their, it causes her to be more focused on it than someone like Bernie who might have the same take, but just didn't tweet about it. You know what I mean? (laughs) And I don't want the, if people are making principal decisions, that's great. But if people are making decisions because like Marianne tweeted loudly about it and Bernie didn't, that feels not right to me. Yeah. I, I think I'm on the same space as well. I think, and this is where my defense of Marion comes in. I think she has really good principles. She's always talked about, um, she always gave this example of how the State Department um, has, for every one person that's employed in the State Department, who's, I guess that's the department that does diplomacy and all that kind of stuff. Um, we have a hundred people employed by the military industrial complex. And from her perspective, she wants to flip that ratio. So instead of like, for instance, when we're sending bombs to Ukraine, for instance, instead of sending bombs, deploy diplomats, send diplomats, send a hundred diplomats down there, get them to start negotiating, get them to start having conversations with the right people. Um, so that way we can avoid, um, avoid war. And one of, one of her things that she was quite, that she kind of, um, emphasized when she ran in 2020 was we need to be aggressive about how we wage peace. And there are four pillars that she uses to say, this is how you aggressively wave, wage peace. The number one was um, increased education opportunities for, for women, for women and children. Mm-hmm. Number two, reduce violence against women. Um, increase number three, increase employment opportunities for women. And number four, um, what was number four? Um, ameliorate all forms of human suffering everywhere. So that would be if you're having student loan debt that's holding you down, if you don't have Medicare for all, things like that. Those are the four pillars that grounds her own philosophy. And in my view, I feel like we need people that have that, that strong philosophy as their, as their foundation. And then we can go in with critiques and we can go in in the future and say, oh, no, you need to do this better. You need to fine tune here and there. But but just throwing the baby out with the bad water, in in my view, is not is not is not acceptable in my view, because what what's happening is we will just abdicate the the policy front. We will just sit down and say, let's do mutual aids and let's be working in the food bank. But ultimately, we're not we're not connecting it to a larger structural project. One of the things she always talked about was, um, I'm probably ranting on now, but one of the things she always emphasized was there is a difference between a good Samaritan and uh, uh, a conscious Samaritan. So for anyone that doesn't know the biblical story, the good Samaritan, see, a, a Samaritan sees a beggar on the floor and it just walks by him, but the good Samaritan gives food or gives gives arms and, and, and things like that. Mm. Um, but after the 10th person, um, a good Samaritan will still keep giving arms and keeping giving them helping out as best as they can. But a conscious Samaritan, after the tenth person, will see things as a structural 
problem. Why are there 10 beggars on the street that I've walked past today on my, on my, on my way to work? And that's why in my view, rather than just trying to help on a mutual aid front, which I think we should definitely continue to do, we, we need to think more structurally. And if we're, if we're afraid of power, if we're afraid to, to have a seat at the table, if we're afraid to engage the Democratic Party, would have a case where 100% of the time they would always win. hundred. If, if we don't engage 100% of the time, they would always win. So um, I'm probably not doing a good job of maybe selling her point of view. And I, I, I want to emphasize that. Shelley made some really great points. The concerns about her foreign policies are definitely ones that I share. But I feel like we should be trying to encourage her to change your perspective rather than just saying, well, we're not even going to engage. Yeah, I think it can't hurt. I mean, like, look, I, I don't have a great sense of, so, you know, foreign policy isn't my area. So my dream, frankly, would be to have her in concert with someone like Aaron Mate on the show. Um, I know yeah. that she has done like, talks and stuff um, with Aaron Mate's father, who is a psychiatrist, I believe, and is in the, like, moves in, like, a similar spaces as Marianne Williamson. I love that man. I know that Marianne and Aaron have tangled on social media in ways that probably don't make that an easy relationship, but my dream is that there could be some kind of facilitation there, because I think of all of the people who are good at foreign policy, Aaron probably has the best social skills and is potentially the nicest. <laughs> um, you know, he's Canadian after all. And, you know, because also because he is Jewish, I think there could be a conversation about some of the Israeli foreign policy that will go over better than if certain other interlocutors. Like, so to me, to me in my mind, that's the dream matchup. Um, if not that, then I see people saying like VJ Prashad, like I, I, I think that that could be also very good to be honest, but like, I would prefer it not to just be me and Marianne. Cause just because I don't think I can vet her as thoroughly as other, you know, I, I can push in the ways that other people could push, but I like, and I don't know how successful it would be. And I, I don't want to sit here and patronize and say, well, Marianne just doesn't know better. And if we just talk to her enough, she'll change her mind. Like she's yeah. an adult, she's informed and she's come to her decisions and her positions. And I, you know, maybe nothing will change, you know, and that's a possibility. But given all that I do really like and appreciate about Marianne, I do think it feels a little premature to have such a draconian approach with her on some of these issues, especially if she's going to be the only one. And I would like to see what happens if we engage in some dialogue before we jump to condemnation. Exactly. But I, I understand why other people feel differently. I just, this is where I'm at. So we'll work on, we'll work on brokering that, especially if she actually really does announce because we have no other option, but anyway, but yeah, that that was my my case for for Marianne. I hope I um, and I hope I didn't sort of um, invalidate sort of the make like the actual concerns that people like Shelley's have brought up. I just don't think um, I feel like we we need to have an option rather than just saying we criticize and then that's it, and then we go back to having no one to rally around for twenty twenty four. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But yeah. I think that that was all for me. Um, I, I think I kind of kept it within five minutes. Um, but yeah, it would be great to sort of hear Jam's perspective on... Um, okay, so here, you guys, like the reason I was going to bring it up together is because I have not been jumping around. And it feels a little like wrong for me to start jumping around at this juncture. Mm. We're already three minutes in, three hours in. 
And I feel like it wouldn't be fair to Lysol, Morgan, Anthony for me to just to jump to Jam. But pulling Jam up with you and letting him get like a little piece in the corner of your conversation. Let's go. Let's let's do it. Let's do okay. it. We'll try to keep you five minutes. Sorry, right. Lysol and Morgan. Okay. So, Jam, I'm bringing you up here into the speakers so that you can continue this dialogue with Tosin. Did you did you want to talk about the uh, Manosphere stuff? Oh, I might have caught Jam off guard. He might not have. Oh, there he is. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. All right, cool. First off, thanks for the love, uh, Tosin. I w- wasn't uh, wasn't expecting I that. But um, but yeah, definitely wanted to um, definitely wanted to talk about like, the Manosphere, the Manosphere stuff. I feel like um, how a lot of people are really like talk about. A lot of people like talk past a lot like the men issues and talk past some like the reasons why dudes are like attracted are attracted to people like Andrew Tate and to people like that was like um Kevin Samuels Kevin Samuels and mm-hmm. such like a big reason um a big reason is we haven't really grappled with the fact of how of how like um of how our society has been and the culture has been progressing and has been progressing like for the um for the better, you know, like for, uh, for women, they like, are well, the good and should and should be. And we've started to, as the culture started to redefine what roles of you no know, women, women should fit in, but we haven't really had that same type of, the same type of um, attention to what, how we supposed to redefine men now in these new, like within this new social structure in which we're creating. And it's causing dudes to, to, um, to, to have like a, a culture clash. Like I, I talked to a lot of like to a lot of um young dudes like back from back um back at home and everything. But matter of fact, just talked to one like another the other day who had pretty much was going to like some similar to this. He was saying that um he was calling me and was distressed. He was saying like what I feel like I'm supposed to be. He was asking me like some advice like how well I feel what a man's supposed to be was supposed to be and that's how I'm supposed to live. I'm not. I, he just he just realized that he wasn't living that that style, that uh, type of lifestyle. And then it's causing, it's causing a lot of like emotional, like emotional distress. And there's nobody, there's not a lot of people who's just trying to come to talk to people within that, you know, within that, um, that's within that same, uh, same, uh, same predicament. And it's, and it, 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 it starts to, it starts to fester, um, a, a type of, uh, self-loathing and self-hate where it comes, it comes like the same feeling of why people might like become like hoteps and shit. Mm-hmm. Where so they they're gonna try to find like good company, you know anybody that's gonna end up or anybody that's gonna end up like talking to that, you know talking to that that um to that sense of you know why you're uh, uh just just talking to give them any type of direction of what to what to be what they feel like you know like they should be like as a man. So what do you think? Yeah, go ahead. May I ask? So specifically, so for this specific individual, did they mm-hmm. feel like this was affecting their dating life just because they didn't have Everything. I guess a more high fly job it was affecting their dating life specifically it's it's it was about it's, it's more just in like because they're actively dating somebody it's more so of everything what they see about like day-to-day life like i wrote a paper called man versus masculinity trying to get to the point of seeing how how dudes felt about what they think masculinity is and if they're actually like living up to it and i interviewed three different three different dudes i interviewed um one guy like who's gay one dude who um, who like one guy was like a father and one dude who was like, just like in between, in between jobs. And what, what, what they, it was, what um shocked me was all the things that they had, that they had in similar, like the, the whole thing, um, 
the main, one of the main things that, that, that they all three had said was that they felt like their masculinity was dependent upon what a woman, you know, like thinks of them. So off rip, they off rip they, what they what they think of themselves is not coming directly, you know, like from like from themselves. And that's causing, you know, emotional, emotional distress. Another thing. And um, one of the things that really like hurt uh, hurt me was like from um, from the gay individual when he said he felt that his him being uh, or him being gay made him feel less, you know, like less less of a man and everything like how. And so we don't we, us as a culture, we haven't really try to grapple with, like I said before, previously, how to, how, how men are supposed to like, um, how men are supposed to interact within like the new, within a new society. Like, because it's a huge thing. Like every dude who I'm talking to from like the age of 18 up to the age of 40, when I was writing, um, when I was writing the piece, all uniformly like said that they needed feeling like they needed like to take care of a woman in order to feel, you know, in order like to feel like a man. You know, and that's and that's what's causing a lot. And as a woman become more independent, it's causing a lot more like distress. You know, distress with it, man. And I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, that um, oh, we need to like revert back or anything like that. Just just to be clear, just in case if anybody you know tried to um was taking that from from what I'm saying. But we need to understand um, we need to try to come up and think of like new ways of how men should 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 start to start to see themselves and start to view you know um mass masculinity as a whole. Yeah, I mean, these these categories of masculinity, I mean, I was reflecting on, well, what is femininity as mm-hmm. you were talking about that? And I made me realize that I don't, I guess I don't think in those terms, especially in a dating context. I mean, I mm-hmm. have had, you know, like I have had girlfriends who I, you know, I thought like, mm, we could try a little harder on a date. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, maybe like show a little more skin. Like I, I have, I have, I have had girlfriends who I feel like have, could benefit from that sort of advice. Um, mm-hmm. you know, look like you want to be there. <laughs> um, but it, I, I don't, I don't think of femininity as maybe, maybe cause maybe, I don't know. I don't, I don't think of it as, as like, I guess that's not true. Well, I, you I relate say, to it differently like, though. Like I think men and women relate to relate to femininity and masculinity like very very like differently. Like and you saying like you know you don't really you know think about um femininity especially in the way of when you're like going about like dating. I like, never think about it. I never think about the word femininity. I don't say the word mm. femininity. I think about like being attractive to men, you know, and mm. what that means. And I have a little bit of an androgynous like kind of early Whitney Houston, kind of a butch streak to me that really prefers mm. to not be especially feminine sometimes. Sure, <laughs> um, but in a dating I context, I don't like, I, I like, I like to try different things all the time and I, and I don't mind mm. performing femininity. It's kind of fun. I like, I'm a Leo. I like feeling attractive in a, in a romantic context. And so I, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I guess like what I'm trying to say is I don't connect it to my self-worth. I think of it as a exactly. tool to attract people that I'm interested in but not yeah. as having anything to do with like my self-esteem really. Yeah. Like it's, it's different for a lot, like for a lot of, uh, that's the part I was about to bring up. It's different for a lot of like dudes, especially younger men. Like it's, it's completely like different. They're seeing masculinity and manhood pretty much like the same, same thing. So like, and they're, and since they're, they're seeing that um, and they, they link being with a woman, uh-huh. a lot of times like being with a woman to that. So being not being able to like to um like provide, not being able like to be like to be with a woman is like threatening 
you know, like to their, you know, to their masculinity and how we as a, like society and like a culture thing about I talk about that as a whole nother like uh thing talking about how we, you know, view um, femininity and everything. But like as a culture, like we, we view, we put, we put, we put masculinity in a very weird, in a very weird, um, in a, in a very weird, like in a very weird, like box, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, in, a very, in a very weird, um, very weird place. Like when I was writing, like talking to interviewing people, like thinking about it, um, seeing, I'm just trying to see like how, how we all like think and, and, and think about and, um, how we all think about like masculinity and manhood and like the affronts to it. Like we get us as like us as a big example of how we feel, we feel think like masculinity is very and manhood is very important. It's like how we go and um how we how we attack things that we feel like is an affront to it. Like when somebody says like some like say if I bring up saying like a transgender person, most of the time if you hear that phrase, people think about a man transitioning to a woman. No one's very minimally are people thinking about like vice versa. As a, uh-huh. as a woman, you know, trans, like transitioning to a man because a man transitioning to a woman is like an affront to masculinity, you know. So uh-huh. it's, it's just like a certain way of the show, just like the whole um uh, bathroom like discussion uh-huh. where we was trying to figure out, you know, which well, like, should trans people be allowed, in, you know, in uh in certain like restrooms. It was always about a transgender a transgender woman going into a woman bath- bathroom and everything being, being uh, like a pedophile or some shit like that. But they never mm-hmm. talked about it vice versa of like trans, trans men being, they, you know, being like other little boys. Because mm-hmm. the because ma- we hold manhood and like masculinity to a completely different, you know, to a completely different standard. Mm-hmm. Like when you bring up gay people, most of the time we hear like, heard somebody say a gay person, people are thinking about like a gay man, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was, while you were talking again, I was thinking about how we, like, you say, like, be a man, like, man up, mm. like, no one has ever instructed me to be a woman, yeah. like, and again, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, I'm sure there are people who are more androgynous, you know, people who present less feminine, in a less feminine way, who have had a lot of pushback from their families and been told to put dresses on and stuff like that, like, certainly that happens, um, but it's not, like, a part of the culture to police femininity in that same way. Uh, and I do think that that has a lot to do with what this crisis is that's going on with men, where, you know, having more freedom and how to express one's womanhood, whatever that means, in terms of being able to wear pants and work and do sports and is that all of that, that fluidness, that fluidity has been, meant freedom for women. And then it has meant, I don't know, something else very different for men, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. It very much so is like, I, I like real shit. Like I cried when I was writing it to hear like that everybody, you, they unanimous, unanimously said people that never like met each other, like completely different, like sides, like a town and everything completely different, you know, like sexualities and everything all felt the same way of feeling like well, how they view themselves is dependent on upon another person, you know? And like, you know, especially when my, um, like when, um, the guy that was, um, that was homosexual, when he told me, like mm-hmm. I was like I was hurt because I couldn't I couldn't I can't fathom that type of I can't fathom that type of like em- emotional like turmoil like you're going through, you know, like to uh, to feel like b- because of your sexuality you're not being you're not fully being like the gender that you that you uh, you feel like you're associating associating yourself with. May, may I just like maybe play devil's advocate a little bit? Um, yeah, please. It's not any different from previous generations i'm just like i'm trying to understand why the manosphere is a thing now 
because men historically have always probably even more so historically men have always been judged harshly like if you don't come home mm. if you don't make the bread if you like if you don't if you don't come home make the money if you're not the man of the house um i'm obviously i'm from a nigerian background like the the man mm. always to provide the woman stay at home you know that that's how it's always been so why why is now different why are why are men wh- wh- why do these men feel more um this sounds callous, but why do they feel more sensitive now than their previous, their fathers and their uncles? Well, because of more, more like true, like everything, like you just said, is completely, completely true. But I think it's because of more uh, societal, societal changes, you know, of, of everything like going, of, of everything like going on. Like men, like now aren't graduated. That's what, like, this is one of the reasons I don't like, like a lot of like fake, like uh, man groups, because every time like a lot of fake man groups come up, they only like talk about men's issues in relation to women, which is like bullshit to me. But like, like they um, like men aren't like graduating like as much. Man, like, the pay scale, a lot of dudes are um starting to earn, you know, earn as much, and because women are becoming more like independent, I think that's a bigger reason why dudes are starting to feel this way. But with, with the big reason. With the big reason, like I said, that they relate themselves to being a man is being able to, you know, like to take care, to take care of somebody. You know, like no, that with a dude yeah. that I was saying that called me. Like he was saying, like, oh, I feel like uh, my granddad like took care, like took care of my grandma, like and everything and helped take care of like the other my um some of my other family members. And I can't do that. I'm starting to feel, you know, less like he's starting to like really click with that reality and everything. He's starting to doubt, you know, like his own like manhood and stuff, you know. And there's no language for taking care of people in ways that are outside of like monetary norms. So mm-hmm. I, I frankly, to be honest, I have felt this tension in my own relationships where I don't think I've, apart from my college boyfriend who we, neither of us worked, but he came from a wealthy family. Like apart from that, I don't think I've ever not out earned a partner. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, look at statistics about um, how, especially for black women, the more educated you are correlated obviously with higher salaries, Mm. the less likely you are to be married. Mm. And I wonder what strain that dynamic puts on my own relationships, even though I tend to date very like progressive enlightened men who never would say anything along those lines. But I Mm. feel a tension sometimes around you know, like a weird kind of power struggle that happens regardless of everyone being very evolved where mm. I, I, I feel like my existence, even though I really don't, I don't want it to be the case. I'm not trying to make it that case makes them feel diminished in some other way. Ma- mm. Makes them feel <clears throat> somehow like not, not empowered in the relationship the way they might have expected to be. Mm-hmm. And you see it playing out, not just like in my personal life, but in these broader demographic trends. Why yeah. would it be if everyone wants money and everyone's struggling in late stage capitalism? Why isn't why isn't why aren't, why aren't people jumping at all these hyper educate you know higher earning single women that are out here in places like New York? Why does our friend what was his name again? Nicholas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, why Roger, he- Roger. Roger. Roger, Roger. <laughs> LOL. Exactly. Why won't Roger <laughs> lock, lock one of these broads down if it's so hard out there for a pimp and New York housing mm. prices are so high? Like, why isn't that a pull? And I, and I, and I, and I wonder about that. Like, what can be done about that without women basically regressing or, or having to perform a kind of subservience in the context of the relationship? 
Yeah, it's going to take massive, like, on a, it's going to take massive, like, cultural, cultural change for, for, like, for, to, to, to re, like, like I said, we, cause we started doing, like, the, the cultural change and, like, the cultural work of how to, um, to how to, um, reevaluate where women belong, like, in a society. You know, but, like, so it's just going to take, it's going to take, we just need to start to do, like, the same, the same thing for how we're going to, like, restructure men and, like, men within, like, the society. And everything we, we that, that's what's going to happen. It's going to have to be start to try to focus, try start to try to focus masculinity around more so of being like independent and self sufficient instead of it being instead of it being more so related like to another person being able to provide you know for another having trying to get trying to get people to, to be more yeah more so like I said like self sufficient and like independent first before you know going out um going out. I know it seems like like simple like simple like simple advice but it's just a it's a, it's a big thing. That I feel like a lot of dudes are are um are are lacking within their um sense of like self worth. Tosin, let me this ask is... you this. You said you're Nigerian. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I've I've heard people talk about how there's an expectation. For example, one of my best friends is Black American married to a Nigerian American man, and mm-hmm. talks about how there's an expectation that for Nigerian men that you're gonna marry someone who's educated. She may or may not work at the end of the day once you get married. But like, there's a value for getting for having a wife who has many degrees and is smart, and you don't want some fool raising your children and all these kinds of things. And I wonder, I wonder if that experience rings true to you, and whether or not that has any impact on relationship dynamics as you've seen them. If there's kind of like an internal cultural value for the woman in particular being as educated as the man in the relationship, and potentially as high a, a earner as the man in the relationship. Yeah. So I'm probably atypical because I'm probably not like the typical kind of like Nigerian kind of guy, but I'm, I, I will say it's more like with everything, I feel like it's definitely a class thing. So perhaps the people that you kind of just mentioned, they mm-hmm. probably have like a higher pedigree and, you know, that's their expectation. Mm-hmm. But I guess maybe I wouldn't say from a maybe like working class um level that maybe I grew up in, just as long as the man is providing the and and the woman can sort of take care of of the kids that are you know that she that that, that give birth to uh-huh. that all that is mainly required but of yeah the, the, as long as the man can provide basically um and that happens that happens and I don't want to like be too reductive but in most cases that is that is the case as long as maybe she can I'm thinking back back to Nigeria now if as long as she has some sort of trade and she, and she can bring in some sort of income. There is no requirement for her to have several degrees. Um, that, that expectation might, maybe might come from their parents and saying, I, I want you to have yeah, a better. They are, they are elite. I mean, they are, they are also a well to do. Uh, exactly. So, um, but again, like with most things, like we cover in, like in the leftist space, it's a class thing. Mm-hmm. So, those those guys that you mentioned will definitely be elite, and they would expect that their their daughter would have you know multiple degrees. Like my 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 ma was okay with me just being um having a business um management admin degree. Um, she didn't expect me to have, but that's interesting. So my sister actually has PhD and all these fancy things. But mm-hmm. I think to, think that's her line of. So she's a pharmacist. So that's probably because that's her line of. That's what she's got to do, but I, I don't have, I don't need married? to. I'm not married. No. Oh, she's married. Yeah. So she's married. 
And is, is her husband Nigerian? He's Nigerian. He's a lawyer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what I'm talking about, Tosin. <laughs> 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 this is what I'm talking about. Let me tell you. My friends, my friends in laws are very lovely. I'm not trying to be shady. But they, they, there's, they kind of sometimes, she, she went to, we went to college together. So, you know, she's Harvard undergrad, T14 law school. And sometimes they talk about, like, I, they, they act like she's just like some chick he found somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they literally met at the law firm together working in the same damn place. But like, there's, there's this really funny, like these very, very high expectations that are like, kind of very amusing to me as an, as an onlooker, but. I'm not trying to get too deep into Nigerian people's business. So Morgan, <laughs> I keep trying to invite you up to join this little group conversation to try to save on time here and like knock all these birds out with one stone. And I see you saying interesting things from a trans experience in the chat. So say yes when I invite you to be a speaker. Say yes, and you can join in this conversation whenever. I'll, I'll make this my last question. Um, okay. I wanted, I wanted to check if it's a... Um, mm. I want to check if it's more a superficial thing, Jam, because even if the, like the gay person, for instance, you cannot date a woman. I mean, I guess you could, but like, ideally you cannot date a woman. So why is your, I guess, your self-worth attached to, to, the, to an ideal that you, you definitely are not attracted to? Um, do all these, all these men, this is a very superficial thing, but all these men, did they, did they engage in some sort of sport? Did they, did they work out? Did they go to the gym? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the um um like the dude um like the um the dude that was like a dad, like he worked out like regularly, like and everything the dude that was in between jobs, like he was real fit, he um ran track, like and everything. They, they were like still like very up you know, very well, like main man, like main, they may like maintain like dudes and stuff like that. Like they're, they're not like slouches and anything. But like that was one of the reasons why you know, I was confused about um I was like confused and hurt when um like the guy that was gay told me, you know, that that his manhood like he said, he felt le- less of a man. I think it's more so because it's just, even though, yeah, he is, he is gay. He's still a part of like American culture, you know, like he still, he still has all the same cultural influences that everybody else, you know, um, that everybody else like, um, here, like grew up in. His own perspective on that too, I'd imagine. Yeah. And like, yeah. So, and he still like, and he still, and he still genderizes himself as a man. You know, mm-hmm. so since that, since that's still, since that's still a thing, like be him being gay, like s- he sees that as an affront. To that needs to be a part of proud manhood, right? That needs mm-hmm. to be a part of proud manhood. That needs mm-hmm. to be a part of uh, of growing up as a man and developing in that way. That needs to be acceptable and okay. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, let's not talk like the like. There's not a ton of toxic masculinity within the gay community, and oh, there's no preference yeah. for Ooh, masculine men yeah. and. <laughs> yeah, like that's a whole other bag of worms. Already, yeah, well, I think that's just like it's just an old I, I, because worms that's just overall right. American culture thing. So every subculture is going to have you know it's going to take from like you know from those from those uh, influences overall. Yeah, you know, just like how you know like, like America like racism is a lot of black black people that's like still get, like perpetuate like racism right. because we all come from you know like the same same exactly. culture and misogynistic women and all all of exactly. the rest of it. So yeah. so here's a question. We here's a question that I have for both of you. Um, if if that's all right, please. Is that like um, we at the end of the day, as a movement of leftists who who appreciate hard labor and labor movements, we've got to figure out a way to bridge the left and the right in terms of labor. And I think that that's one of the unique benefits of someone like Bernie. Bernie did that well. Um, and there's there have been very few candidates after him that have done that well. 
And so one of the things that I wonder quite frequently is how can we on the left reach out to those on the right to bridge the labor gap? What, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm about to say, in what way? I'm kind of confused by the, the question. Labor gap, Morgan. Are, are you still talking about, are we still in this conversation about toxic masculinity? Because at first I thought you were going to ask, how do we get some of these people who are moving rightward because they are so lost in their masculinity and going toward the Jordan Petersons and Andrew Tates to find some space on the left to feel like these concerns can be addressed. But it sounds like, is, is well, that so, so I guess what I wanted, what I wonder if, if, if these are significant enough online contributing factors, if these are significant enough demographics that they're present online, how do we align them with leftist labor goals? Because I've got to imagine that an enormous number of them are um, underprivileged when it comes to labor rights and organizing power. You know, like like an enormous amount of people, I imagine, that that, that uh, contribute to sort of Andrew Tate style, um, you know, what, what have you guys been calling it? Manosphere sort of like uh, production values. Like these are people who are fundamentally underserved in the labor market, just like mm. other laborers. Right. Like. I, I think that that's one of the big benefits of someone like Bernie is that he appealed to underserved labor markets in both on, on both the left and the right. I don't know. Maybe I'm going a little bit bipolar on this shit. So you're saying that the point is that men who feel maybe drawn to these spaces because they are without economic opportunity, right? How to, how to connect that to the class analysis and not just? What I'm saying is that obviously people who are drawn to this sort of marketing are hurting, and workers are hurting. At the core of all of our fundamental beliefs is the belief that workers should not be hurting as much as they are. And as much as we might not align ourselves with some of the moral like um, uh, alignments of, of the of the far right or of the red pill community or of the Joe Rogan community, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Still, these are people who are hurting. And fundamentally, I think these hurts derive from capitalism. They derive from a labor market that's unfair. They derive from uh, loan agencies that are unfair. They derive from all sorts of, uh, of legal precedent that's quite unfair to working people. And I wonder how we can incorporate those people into our movement, because that to me okay, is you. the most powerful thing we've got, unifying labor against establishment. Yeah, I think I, I think I get I could get more um more what you're saying. Like uh yeah, like Bree just said, like a lot of dudes are um and like you said articulated as well, like a lot of dudes are for like in like dire straits. That's um especially like economically and everything that's going to this. So like, one of the main things you know, that I said or why a lot of dudes like end up feeling like this way, end up being like going over to like the Andrew like take and people as such is them feeling like they need like to provide um you know for someone not being able to like financially you know like uh, not being able to financially care for somebody yeah Yeah. so being able to try to connect try to connect um like kind of the way like how bernie did connect how um policy end up creating like um like trade agreements end up killing a lot of like the, the union jobs and everything which end up making it harder for people to have to just being able to sustain a family off of a single job you know, being able, being trying to link, trying to link, um, trying to trying to link their life experiences. Exactly. You know, to, These to are that, things so that, that are very, very linked to, to toxic masculinity at their core. I I completely agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but well, I don't I think you... I don't think it's just mm-hmm. like a lot of people like in the chat too said like bringing up like capitalism, 
like as like the main thing. I don't think it's just capitalism. It, it is, even though like it is like a part of it is like a cultural, it is part cultural as well outside of, you know, like outside of, um, outside of like uh, uh, capitalism and everything. Like, so you can have, you can have some people like, um, you, you have like, uh, like in a lot of modern relationships, you can still have somebody like a woman making more, making more like than a man and that would end up, um, supporting like the family more. But like we still we still end up taking like a subservient more so well, I don't want to say subservient more so as letting letting the man lead the uh, relationship more. That's more so cultural that I feel more so than um more so than just like capitalistic. Cause You're right. More You're so right. But at a certain point, it up. becomes necessary to either have a partner or yourself exhibit enough mm-hmm. skill in the capitalist market to make enough money to live. And, oh, yeah, and, I'm just saying and, and the thing that's been happening since Clinton, since fucking honestly, since Reagan, probably before that, is, is that it's become harder for working people to live and subsist off of each other. You know? Yeah, most definitely. Like I said, I, I agree. I'm just saying it's not just, you know, a capitalist thing. It's cultures mixed in it. You know, it takes a big part as yeah, well. Yeah, I do. I, I think the tension that I'm hearing is like, I agree with you entirely, Morgan, but I am a little worried that people coming to a space only conceptualizing of their um, problems as pretty interpersonal and emotional, being hit too hard with some of the more political jargon could be a little off-putting. And I don't think that even, like, you don't log into Jordan Peterson and he's like, the, yeah, the way is to be a Republican. You know what I mean? Isn't, isn't this, the, isn't more- this though, the, the primary selling point of Bernie, though? Isn't this, like, the, the fact that when you talk just about medical debt, just about, just about financial disadvantages that the market places on both Republican and Democrat working people. Like, like, isn't that the advantage that that you can talk to both people on the left and the right who are similarly disadvantaged by economic policy that that we've had in our. But Morgan, I'm saying something a little bit different. What Mm. I'm saying is that if someone comes to you with a problem that they're feeling deeply talking about something that seems like a broader abstraction can seem really insensitive. So in the same way, if I was in a Bernie context and someone came up to me about their horrible medical debt, I wouldn't say, well, the problem is capitalism and we got to we got to do a socialism. Like I would show compassion for their what they've gone through, the loss of their loved one, whatever they're dealing with. And all I'm saying is I'm not saying that you wouldn't also. I'm just saying that there's a way that I think it feels a little premature, maybe when there doesn't seem to be much in the way of spaces that are left friendly spaces for folks to come and talk about what they're dealing with in this emotional uh, uh, relationship areas to like, I wouldn't want to be too premature and jumping to look, this is the systemic thing. We're got to do it. We got to do a revolution to fix your love life. Well, that, that, that's the all thing I, that I little, always know, I, I get what you're saying, but the thing that I always kind of recalibrate to during these election cycles is that at the end of the day, we, we have to think about the thing that unites us both. And the thing that unites us both is mostly capitalist exploitation. And it's something that's been felt more extremely, you know, by, by large portions of marginalized communities than, than they have been by the um, primarily like white, like voting community for the past like 25 years. But, but fundamentally they're the same things. Uh, like this sort of worker exploitation is I think the origin of the reason why we got Trump at the same time we got Bernie, you know, we, we, we got like two candidates who were anti-establishment, essentially, you know, people who were outside of the Democratic Party on the left, Bernie, and outside of the Republican Party on the right, Trump. And like, I, I think that there's something to be farmed there. I think that 
I think that displeasure with political establishment, which is something that obviously we feel as leftists and mm-hmm. obviously people on the right also feel, I think that there's got to be some way of uh, cross-stitching those two things into a viable labor candidate. Amen. I think I think that's true. And I think that we are all hoping for a candidate of that type. It does feel to me, again, that like talking about a political candidate that captures some of those things and talking about spaces for people to bring these concerns to the foreground are a little bit separate, right? Like a candidate, like that seems a little bit detached from the conversation about how men are feeling and what to do about it. And in, in, in all of these like online spaces that have emerged that are of a rightward bent. Um, but I, I mean, Morgan, maybe I should ask you this. How would you answer your own, own question? Are you, or are you primarily concerned with a candidate who taps into these spaces as opposed to creating left versions of these spaces? So if I'm going to be totally honest, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tuned out at this point because I believe that the amount of, um, political capital that things like botnets have in our social media environment, that things like artificial, you know, like something that you talk about as manufactured consent, you know, like wide ranges of purchasable intent politically on social media are just very effective nowadays. Um, at this point, I'm I'm kind of completely without hope in terms of democratic policy change um it it leaves me in a in a really bleak scenario um but may i I just go back to when you said the botnet so you're talking about bots perhaps maybe amplifying things more and making them more popular than they are so you're saying sphere thing might just be not as popular as the twitter not not just that my thing might not be as popular but that all of the things are influenced by usually purchases of botnets to skew things in direction X or in direction Y. Interesting. That's a very interesting That's perspective. thing I wanted to call in about, it related to Greta, it related to, to Tate. Um, it relates to Elon. It relates to a lot of things. You know, one of the things that, that my, my dad, and me and my dad talk about politics sometimes when we're sitting out on the porch and smoking cigarettes. But one of the things he posed to me, because he's kind of an Elon fuckboy, you know, is, is, is he was like, he, he knew that I was really enjoying this Andrew Tate, uh, you know, arrest. And he said to me, isn't it weird that this arrest never would have happened unless Elon had let him back on Twitter, mm-hmm. you know? And that was like kind of an interesting thing for me to think about for a second. And I'm not sure how I feel about it yet, but like there's just such a huge abstraction that is social media diplomacy that we really don't have the tools to talk about. Like, this is why I wanted to talk about botnets. Like, like, you know, there's that Twitter account that tracks Elon's private jet, right? And Elon tried to ban him from Twitter and he eventually got back on and other people started tracking his private jets. That's great. He's doxing him, whatever. But like, I wish that we had a product like that for botnets. I wish that we had uh, something to track which governments, which political entities were purchasing large groups of fake users to either reinforce or disintegrate certain political campaigns. And that's something that we have on social media right now that I don't know how to identify, you know? I feel like if Ralph Nader was on this call, he would say we're all too online, that we need to get back to like touching human beings 
Um, and maybe that's that way. I guess you could find out who is real and who is not real. I guess. Yeah, it's not that. I, I, hey, I I'm I, sorry, Brianna. Go ahead. I agree. I agree with the aspects of what you're saying, Morgan. I think that there's something, some real interesting potential behind some of the Twitter um, files. If we really do have more transparency about who's blocked and why, and who has real support and who's being boosted and those kinds of things, I'm not especially hopeful that Elon Musk is going to create policies that are equitable. Can I, can I share an anecdote that kind of uh, illuminates this sort of discussion? Well, just just one second. I'd like to close this ring if if I could. But the part of me that, uh, despite seeing that potential, I'm also it's sympathetic to Tosin because part of what I was really enjoying about the conversation you were having was this kind of very human aspect of relating to people, even though they've made some repugnant choices, they love Andrew Tate, they want to do the muscle powder and beat the women or whatever. Like, there's something very human about the pain that's driving that that makes me empathetic and makes me feel like there's a lot of gains to trade there for the left. And we don't often, sometimes we're talking about this like right-left alliance and the horseshoe theory of it all in a political world. It seems like there was a lot more openness to the idea of reaching out to people who are hurting in a social context as opposed to just a political one. And I think that there could be like some really big opportunities there, but that feels very, very different. That like kind of place of compassion we're all kind of sitting in feels a little different from this kind of technological conversation that I think is also important, but that you're bringing into it, Morgan. You mean, I I think that it's complicated because I think that there are a lot of communities like, like the one that you've fostered yourself, uh, where where these sorts of discussions can happen uh, unfettered um, and within a community of people who are, who are willing to hear you out. I I don't think that that is the, um, you know, the, the structure of topicality that we have right now for the marketplace of ideas. I don't think that that's what we have right now when it comes to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Um, I, I, I just feel that we're at a, an extreme disadvantage when it comes to uh, these sort of artificial implants. I don't know. Yeah. Well, look, this has all been really interesting. It's been nice to have all three of you up at the same time. Before I move on to Lysol and kick you three off, is there anything anybody else wanted to say? Before my feminism card gets revoked, both you and Jam mentioned that women are probably more independent these days than they are historically. And there is from one, of, I learned this from one of those two ladies that I recommended to you, Brie. Um, they always say the, the idea of marriage is um is a capitalist idea it's a patriarchal idea so i think they 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 support polyandry basically they think that women should not have to be devoted to just one man um they they can have as many as many men as possible because that increases their ability to i guess build capital for themselves so on that bombshell note i'm gonna just drop off before everybody attacks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no, this has been fun. Thanks, Jam. Thanks, Morgan. And sorry, I've got, for like I've got one last thing to say, and then I'll leave you and Jam to it. And uh, But what I want to say is that I, the thing that I've come to believe in my cis white malehood, which is, you know, my perspective or whatever, is that like, uh, if we cannot identify a rallying point between the left and the right for underserved and exploited laborers, we're not doing anything. Yeah. That's all I want to say. Thank you uh, so much for doing what you do, Bree. Yeah, thank you, Morgan. That's been great. And Jam, I appreciate you as well. Did you have any last words? Uh, I just want to leave off with saying that um, 
I feel like we need to uh, people that like, like to talk about masculinity and manhood need to to relate it more. Like men personally need to talk about how how when it becomes like hyper masculinity, how that affects men negatively. Um, because we, that's not really like talk, talked a lot, a lot about, we talk about it, like how it affects, you know, other people, um, like that's around like the man when they're being like hyper masculine, but not how it ne- negatively affects like the man himself, um, like negatively. Yeah. I, I'm at a little bit of a loss cause it's hard for me. It's like even hard to ne- masculinity has been defined so narrowly that it's almost hard to imagine without the toxicity. <laughs> I, I heard that a lot. Like you know what I mean? Like, like it's hard. It. But but when I um the the thing is when I um when I was writing like when I was writing that paper I told you about um when every when I asked I asked I asked everybody the same questions. One of the questions was you know like what do you think like a, a man is? Nobody said anything like um that would end up being that you, that you could relate to like uh, toxic uh, masculinity. Everybody just talked about um being a being a provider for the family, being a protector uh for the family, you know, being able like to do things um to get things done that that needs to be done. You know, I won't I don't view those things, you know, those aspects of masculinity to be like a toxic right, like, but it is enemy. toxic because just, you can't do that, right? Like it, it becomes not, exactly. It if becomes you're not physically toxic. strong, you're not a man. Like mm. that's what we say is toxic like if you're not wealthy enough to provide, you're not a man. Mm. Like you know it, what I'm saying? it doesn't come. And that's the thing. Let's just be honest. Like, I'm not trying to come for anybody, but mm. these men, I'm like, no one's out here doing Krav for me in the street. You know, like, I, I'm walking down the street with some of these guys, and you know, the streets, there's shenanigans afoot. And I'm constantly thinking to myself, if something goes down, if this cat collar gets too fresh with me, there is no part of me that is thinking I'm going to rely on this dude to step up. And and I'm I'm running in that direction. He can do what he wants to do. Mm. <laughs> This, the way this is going to go down is not some damsel in distress stuff. At all, at all points, I'm I'm presuming to fend for myself, and that's like no shade to anybody. Like I I don't want to have the expectation that some man has to like get in a fight and get hurt because of my honor or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But like if they're not fighting, if they're not paying, if they're not that at a certain point, like it 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 there's this awkwardness that hangs between us. That is like I don't know the point of view. I'm not. That's not me saying that. But like nobody knows the, like the, what the rules are anymore. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Like we need to re reevaluate how like how men like think think about like or how they relate themselves to to masculinity more so being like self sufficient. But still, like I, I will just we'll just have like a disagreement on it. Like I don't think it's um I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's well, not wrong. I don't think it's bad. Or like um toxic to say that uh, to to aspire to want to be able you know to take to take care to take care of somebody uh, that you love or take care of your family. Yeah. But when if you're not able, if you're not able like to do so, then that that can, can create like turmoil. But I don't think that the goal in itself is that the goal in itself is is, is a bad one, you know. And like sure, that's but that's why again like, I know a lot of dudes like say they have not they have not culture clash clash where they're not living up to to what they think of themselves, you know, like as a man, they're not living up to that ideal. And that's what's causing, you know, like so much, so much like, um, downtroddenness with that man it was leading a lot of like suicides and shit. We don't talk yeah. about hyper masculinity is causing suicide rate of like young men and everything to jump up. But I don't want to take up, you know, like too much, too much more like the time and everything. So love well, y'all. I appreciate all. you, Jim. Keep the faith, Jim. All right. Lights all. How are you doing tonight? Hey, Bri, how's it going? I'm doing well. What's on your mind? So, um, 
I was thinking, so I mean, people in the chat kept going back and forth about uh, Marianne and whether or not she would run, whether or not she'd be uh, in the Democratic thing. And I feel like the biggest weakness Biden has is make him debate as many times as possible past his bedtime. <laughs> Stop. Like straight up, just like have them all be on the East Coast. So they all start at like 9.30 p.m. And then just walk Marianne fucking walk circles around him. So this is part of the problem. I'm not trying to be that person, but if Marianne runs as a third party, she's not debating anybody, right? Those are the rules. Like she's not, they're not going to debate her. Biden will not be debating her, point blank, period. If she runs as a Democrat, that's the ticket to doing so, to getting on the debate stage. I'm not, I'm not saying what she should or should not do. I'm just throwing that out there. As a re- because that's one of the reasons people like that dirty break scenario where you run as a Democrat, but you pledge to switch when you're wronged or when you lose or whatever. I mean, the Republicans freaked out about Trump saying that for about three days and then just folded it back into their expectations. He's like, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to agree to that. Why would I agree to that? What, agree to what? What do you mean? Oh, um, well, I mean, they tried to get him to do the loyalty pledge, but like, will you promise not to run third party? And he was like, unequivocally, no. I mean, he didn't say unequivocally because he doesn't know what that means. Yeah, but... yeah. So I'm saying, yeah. So the dirty, but I'm just saying the dirty rig that requires her to run as a Democrat. And so many people here have said that if she runs as a Democrat, she's dead to them. Yeah. That's I mean, not, I'm pointing I feel out. like it could be a form of self-care. Like, don't we deserve nice things? Don't we deserve to see Marianne Williamson debate Joe Biden? Like, I'll, do, I'll donate some money to that. I would yeah. like to see it. I would like art, to see it. It's an art concept more than like an actual run. People okay. say she's unserious. I'm like, have you seen the people running the country? Like, yeah. <laughs> Joe Biden announces the Iran nuclear deal's dead at a fucking like handshake line. Yeah, I don't like, I, I whatever you think about Marianne, I absolutely think she's serious. I think the complaints that she's unserious are not accurate. You can decide you disagree with her. You can, you know, whatever. But if, I, I think she's very, very serious about this and frankly would object to some of the way that we're talking about her running as a symbolic candidacy. I think that if she does it, I mean, she's run for president before. She does it. She, she said she meant it last time. She wanted to win. She wanted to be president. She was ready to be president. And that if she runs again, I think that she'd be in the same posture. She wants, she doesn't just want to, she doesn't like some vanity ploy, you know. Yeah. The, the only moment I ever doubted her I w- I was one of the first debates and they had everybody do like a raise your hand if you support Medicare for all. And she like raised her hand a little bit, then did, did, did like the, looked over and then did like the slicker hair move, movement where she like did not just leave her hand up. She was just adjusting something. About you Medicare know? for all? Yeah. Did she, wasn't she, was she not openly for Medicare for all last time around? It was, it was, it was early in the debates. I'm pretty sure it was Medicare for all. It might've been a green new deal, but either way, she like stuck her hand up and like simultaneously looked over because they had her on the far, on the far right. And like saw that who was putting their hand up and who wasn't and kind of like ducked her hand out of the way and put it back down. Uh, well, I don't, I, I can't speak to that. I don't remember seeing that, but um, what, what is, so what is, what is your overall take then Lysol? You called to talk about Marianne. What's your what's your question or your takeaway? Oh, um, I mean, I would definitely invite her to be on America's Biggest Leftist. I think she, I think I have her. I have Susan Sarandon. I got Greta. I got Kashama. I got Bernie. If Bernie wants to do it, I think it'd be a really fun house. It'd be some really good, <laughs> some really good like drama and like craft room as they're like preparing for the challenges and stuff. 
<laughs> all right. Well, if all else fails and our political ambitions um, are stymied early, maybe you can, you can convince people just to do a, a left hype house Big Brother situation in, instead. Yeah. Um, and also in, in terms of like the in terms of the fiction stuff, I was going to put it out there to the group because, I mean, there's probably like six or seven of us that have written a thousand words in the chat so far tonight. Um, write up what you th the conversation between uh, between uh, Pelosi and AOC before the, the Iron Dome vote. Just like mm. let your imagination run wild. Like, what do you think happened? And email it to me. I'll put my email in the chat. It's sacredsilversexual at gmail.com. <laughs> Wonderful. I can't wait to hear uh, those reports. Maybe we can do a, a live reading, a dramatization. Uh, we can take turns reciting the roles of Nancy Pelosi and AOC. Maybe we can we can set it to a stage. Do we have any theater nerds in the audience? I maybe, mean, maybe this, maybe this is what you can perform at the first Bad Faith live show. Yeah. I mean, I, I did that, actually. In 2016, I ran for president as, a, as an art concept. It was called DJ Action President. So the pitch was, he's a DJ, so you know he's cool. His name's Action, so you know he gets results. And his last name's President, so people have been calling him Mr. President his entire life. <laughs> or, you, or you can call him President President, which is twice the president, but the same amount of money. And the conceit was kind of like, look, I'm a broke... I'm I'm, I, I'm broke and I have to take money from weird people and like me and my friends make up like different like political commercials and it was really just kind of like a vehicle for those commercials. And then we did uh, we did one in, one like live debate where me and like eight other candidates got up and like debated and we had a moderator and then we had a, a, a couple comedians who were like doing something on the side like kind of like how do you think they're doing so far? All right, well look, put it put it together. Someone dropped your email in the chat very kindly and uh i look forward to seeing what you creative folks can can do when you put your minds to it thanks for calling in lifestyle being so patient yeah for sure all these hours yeah keep the faith all right keep the faith now i'm inclined we have four minutes until we're at the top of the hour wraith can you make it short and sweet yeah free um Tonight has been very interesting. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I listened to uh, Andrew Tate. Uh, what's the other guy? Matt Walsh, Jordan Peterson. Like everybody that people seem to have a problem with. And yet they do say some outlandish things, especially Andrew Tate. Mm -hmm. They be right. So tell me, tell me what you find. What what are we missing about their appeal? Oh no, there there is no appeal. My mama, <laughs> tell, me, my mama tell me all the time it ain't what you say; it's how you say it. They, it's like they think of things, even though it may be true, and then they they word it to be as. Um, as shocking as they possibly can. And then it's like they say it and it's it's crazy. It's like they they can be right, but they'll say it in a way that's just so wrong that people will get caught up in that emotion and just bypass everything they say. Like the I've never supported censorship until tonight because these men are not finding therapists. They're finding community within each other. And it's it's strange. Cause yeah. Them, them fresh and fit boys are making waves because some dude told my best friend 
that she was too masculine for uh for a man. I was like, I don't understand. Like these dudes want they want to be head of the household, and if you do what they say, and they want you to go half and half with them. Like, baby, if you got to go half, he getting half your damn mind every time you feel like saying something. <laughs> Wait, his his critique was that she was too masculine because she made too much money, or because, because she was physical. Because she had an opinion about something and she's not just finna bow down to some man just because he making money when she out here making money too and she paying on the bills like and then he always talk about how it was the old day where the man paid for everything but the men not paying for everything now is going half and half. Yeah, that that is really the, the old school feeling. Look, I, I'm guilty of this. Like this is a problem and I don't know what to do about it because like, I, I was watching Married to Medicine over the break. I had never watched it before. And if you're not familiar with the concept, it's mostly wives of doctors in Atlanta, but a couple of the women are the doctors. And the ones that are the doctors, one of them has a real sweet husband. And she makes a lot of jokes about how she's the breadwinner and that she's not taking care of these damn kids and he's going to cook the meals. And they're like, they're kind of jokes, like knowingly subverting the gender stereotypes. But like, sometimes the jokes are like, like, maybe a little uncomfortable and you know it's one thing to say that your your spouse is the primary caregiver because you maybe work more hours and are a doctor but he also does have a job and no one wants to feel like you're you have to take care of everything just because you happen to make less money and equity isn't just about who much how much everybody makes it's also about who has time and like you also want to have relationships with your children regardless of how much you work you know so like I watched that that dynamic some version of that dynamic play out a lot and it's it's difficult to know how much you should be. I, I I struggle with this. It's like how much am I defensively asserting myself because I feel like I'm being pushed into a traditional gender role that's not fair for many reasons, including that I am in fact the higher earner. And how much is this like about human relationships and compromise? And you have to make the other people feel person feel equal and accommodated for. And this isn't about you and your weird gender hangups. And that's a, that's a difficult a, a dance that I see a lot of high achieving women struggle with. <laughs> and, and there's it's a fine line between like humble yourself for your man's ego, and <laughs> and humble yourself because people all have egos, and you need to just make them feel valued. No, and, no. and be, I be having opinions. We all know I have opinions. Y'all are all here because of my opinion. <laughs> Look, it's, it's one thing to stroke an ego. It's another thing to provide a deep tissue massage. Like some some people have got too much ego. Like it, it's too much. I'm like, look, I was like, thank God I'm a man. I don't have to because listen, if I'm going half and half, you getting half of my damn mind. Like it ain't no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I don't care about your opinion. If you want my silence, pay for it. Okay, the mortgage is due. And yeah. the bills is due. My check is my check. Now, if you, if you want silence, pay, pay my hair and I'll hush. <laughs> I mean, like, look, I, I'm, I've never been quite in that space, but I definitely, I mean, I, I have definitely been in the space where I feel like I have a lot of my plate on my mind and have not been able to have felt like there's not room for me to talk about my professional stressors 
because no matter how like no matter what their job is or my job is their professional stuff always takes precedence always 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 and and i don't know what to do about that and i don't ever want to be like i don't ever want to like try to like big dick the situation and be like hey i'm brianna I, you know, I trended on Twitter today, so shut the fuck up and listen to me and my problems. Look, if and it's I mean, swinging, then it's swinging. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. It's I'm rough out here. Shout out, shout out to hand. all my, uh, all my female identifying friends in the audience, because <laughs> there's no easy answers to this one. I'm afraid. I mean, right? I mean, like, I'm very indifferent. I don't like humans either way. Give me an animal, and I'm good. <laughs> But it's like a high-value man has so much value. He can't see the value in anyone else. And, like, they treat women as stepping stools. Like, dude, she she got probably just as much value as you, if not more. Like, a man that make a lot of money, really, that's not a high commodity. A woman that make a lot of money, that's something, you know, I ain't going to say you're going to see it too often, but it's not promoted as much. Mm-hmm. Like, women are expected to be in need or in stress and men are just supposed to be there or so they've been taught but at the same time like they're so disrespectful like i was like you know what i see why some women are single yeah i am of the mind that like i i don't have a lot of curious like i know exactly like i know what my situation is and i'm not really mad at it people have their standards and their boundaries and you know i always say it's an inventory problem I'm, there's a like there's a there's a de- there's a deficit of inventory for what I'm looking for and that just is what it is <laughs> you know and if the inventory fills up great if there's no inventory then I'm not trying to buy something that I don't want <laughs> I'm trying to fill in my house with junk but um shout out to Rogue Kite I'm sorry that you broke up with someone over force of vote that has also happened to me <laughs> oh, I'm sorry that my opinions are getting you in trouble I appreciate this community all of you, I hope you all have the best of New Year's. Wraith, it's been great talking to you. Are you a first-time caller? No, I call all the time. Okay. I don't know. what. I mean, have we spoken before or are you just in the queue? Yeah, we talk all the time. We talk Wait, about you change your picture? I'm, I'm just saying I'm looking at your face and it feels unfamiliar to me. Yeah, I did change my picture. Okay. All right. What was your picture before? It was like a partial of my face with me smiling. Okay, that's what's going on here. It's not It's not you. It's that I'm a very visual person and I'm just not recognizing this avatar. But I, we're at four hours. We gave you the four because I I only gave you one last week and I felt really bad about it. I've been tortured about it. Um, it was Christmas. You deserve to break. I appreciate that. I hope you guys all have the bestest of New Year's and I will be home soon without this raggedy setup where I'm playing my intro music from my computer. Take care. Keep it safe.
I wish I was a comedian. A late night sitcom syndicated on TV. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are feeling all my panic. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help of life. It's like, I'm in the shower. And every time we love it, it feels just like you. I'm in the shower. And every time we do it, it feels just like you. I wish, I wish. And every time we love it, it feels just like you. It feels just like this.